at Sif Pop. We're your movie friends. But are friends really friends? If you don't know them, so grab a popcorn and head over to our row so we can chat movies like friends do. There's always room for more movie friends. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the writer's room. Hello and welcome to Sif Pop Writer's Room. I'm your host, Aaron, but not that Aaron, of course. And this week I'm joined by Sif Pop staff writer Shane Kanto. Hello, everyone. And contributor Luke. Now I'm become Barbie, the destroyer of worlds. <laughs> Hello. Uh, <laughs> man. Awesome. Um, I heard I saw something um that was somebody asked whether or not we should go support movies. Um for the next little bit because of the strikes, which we're going to talk more about the strikes in a second. And, uh, and they said, absolutely. You should, you should go see the movies because if you don't go see the movies, the studios are just going to see that as um, a, as, as the movies aren't making money, you know, they, they won't correlate it to the strike. So you should still go see, uh, you should still go see the movies. They said, just, you know, also remember, you know, this, 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 and this, and remember to support this and that. And, and, you know, they they kind of gave some other guidelines. Anyway, so then somebody took that Lord of the Rings meme and they put Barbenheimer's back on the menu, boys. <laughs> and it was <laughs> super fitting. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we reference to pop.com. Do you do movie, movie reviews, best ever challenges, lots of other things on mm-hmm. the website. Shane does um, a monthly article. Uh, change over to the shortlist. Yes. Uh, if you haven't checked that out, I think that's uh, one of our like most unique articles that we do now because we don't really talk about shorts that much and um i think it's been really They're fun very comfortable kind of reading them yeah that's like a super you know by the time you finish reading the article you could probably watch all the shorts you know um so like that's that's a fun thing and i like i feel like it's one of those the only time people watch shorts are when they're oscar nominated and they find a you know they find them on youtube or hulu or whatever and they spend they watch them once and never think about them again so like i think that's really cool or you want to go uh, see a lovely movie called Coco and then force to watch 25 minutes of Olaf the Snowman. Yeah, but but you could also, was it, yeah, Monsters, Inc. had like Bird on Wire in front of it, right? I can't I remember. I can't recall which ones and, were. I just know that like, I think it was Gerald's Game, the chess one was in front of A Bug's Life. Yeah, that one's my favorite. That one's awesome. Yeah. Gerald's Game and then uh, the yeah the Bird on Wire, I think, is Monsters, Inc. Uh, Jerry's Game, isn't those. it? Yep. Gerald's Game is a whole other kind of thing. <laughs> Much darker. Um, I'm going to just feel better off not knowing. <laughs> um, so we'll talk about uh, some stuff on the podcast today. We got two um, big movies. I don't know if you guys know this, but um, there's two very big movies coming out this weekend. Um, no, tell me. Tell me which one. Week. Um, yeah, Barbie and Oppenheimer are going to release the same oh. weekend. And I don't like, you know, I, it's, it, there haven't been like articles about it or anything. Uh, you know, one of the things actually, um, we talked about doing for the best ever challenge. We thought about doing like the best open, like weekends ever. Um, and there were some really interesting, um, things I, I, I'll, I'll rattle them off here once I find them, but, um, we decided ultimately against it because it, um, it becomes way too subjective. It becomes way too, way, way more difficult to um, to actually judge what's a good weekend and what's not. And it also becomes um, like there was a lot of recent weekends, and especially with that, with all the like streaming stuff, you know, um, it just felt just too darn complicated. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, like too, like too darn complicated is just the right way to put it. So. Um, you know, for the for the listeners that aren't writers, you know, we'll uh, 
we'll be able to um, to read what we actually did this week. Um, but looks like the original Ghostbusters and Gremlins were the same day. Star Trek Two and Poltergeist. Blade Runner and The Thing were the same weekend, Raising Arizona and Evil Dead 2, Die Hard and A Fish Called Wanda, Boys in the Hood and Point Break, Pulp Fiction and Hoop Dreams, Toy Story and Casino, that's a really fun double feature, Jumanji and Heat, Matrix and 10 Things I Hate About You, Usual Suspects and Mortal Kombat, Gladiator and Human Traffic, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Batman 1989, um, The Shining and Empire Strikes Back, Man, is that, that would be number one, wow. wouldn't it? Like that has to be it. Probably. Um, yep. Zero Dark Thirty and Amore. Nebraska Dallas Buyers Club, Elf Love Actually, Dark Knight, Mamma Mia. That one's actually the real number one, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, How to Train Your Dragon 2 and 22 Jump Street. Um, actually, like I could contend, I could see this one contending, but The Old Guard and Palm Springs were the same weekend. Mm-hmm. Belfast and Tick Tick Boom. Um, the Northman and the Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Spider-Man No Lay Home, Nightmare Alley. Bullet Train, Prey, and Bodies, Bodies, Bodies on the same weekend. That's but Prey has awesome never, but Prey has never had a cinematic release. Yeah, well, it I mean, it was on a, Hulu. It, 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 we, or yeah, we, on Disney Plus if you're in the UK. We counted some there of the streaming ones, but yeah. Um, so anyway, it was just uh, we we decided not to uh, mm-hmm. uh, we decided not to go that way, but it was a fun thought experiment to kind of see. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Uh, once we're done talking about Bobby and Ar- Barbie and Oppenheimer, we'll move on to a couple movies. Um, we'll do Modern Times and Chaplin. Um, we'll talk about those two, and we'll go to the B plot, which uh, we said we're doing uh, a best ever challenge of black and white movies. Kind of our stipulations were not like released after a certain point because we did that for the website before. We did kind of just say it has to be mostly black and white, and it has to be original. So like. I know we all should have had the black and white or the black and chrome edition of Mad Max Fury Road, but that's a re-release. So we're just not going to count it. So it has to be like its original release was black and white and then we can count it. So, um, yeah, I think that covers it. Um, we'll do the we'll do the spin the spinoff as well. But I've been talking for a while. Let's get a chance to hear from Shane and Luke for a little bit. Guys, I just wanted to start by having a short conversation. Um, what are your thoughts on things going on with, you know, we the, the Writers Guild of America strike has been going on for, I think, like 60 some days now. And um, the the SAG also just um, um, joined. Um, I mean, I guess it's like separate strikes, but they're picketing together, mm-hmm. you know, which mm-hmm. um, solidarity. Yeah, solidarity, right? Like it's they're striking four different things, but yeah, um, four different contracts, um, but but yeah, ultimately for the same thing. Ultimately for the same thing, yeah. Down what do you guys think? Um, <laughs> what do you guys think? Uh, what are your takeaways from all this? I'm curious how long you think it's gonna last. I'm curious. Um, do you does is this something that it, it? I'm curious if this is something that we look back and you're gonna say like the writers really did the best, like the, the writers really got the best of the studios or is this going to be like the writers eventually had to cave. Um, I'm curious what you guys think uh, is going on. How is this going to affect the future of at least the immediate future of uh, movies? And um, what do you, what, what are your guys just general thoughts you have about the, the two strikes going on? You want to start? Sure. Um, I guess generally speaking about what they're fighting for, obviously, a lot of people who are trying to side with the studios, it's like, why should I be sympathizing for all these multimillionaire stars and stuff like that when they make up a very small portion of the working people that actually make movies? And I think this negotiation is important for the whole entire future of art 
because if they don't nip artificial intelligence in the butt now, they're going to open up a whole can of worms at some mm-hmm. point when it's better mm-hmm. yeah. and gets out of control. And then they don't need anybody because yeah. then they could just make everything by pumping things into a computer and just plopping it out. And when you're making things just good enough to make money, why make all the costs of actually having human beings involved? So I think this is super, super important in terms of the future of film and television. Um, How long this is going to last? Well, when you have studio execs saying that they're going to wait people out until they lose their homes and can't pay their rent and stuff like that, those are some fighting words. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I do think that eventually this won't go as long only because I don't think this industry can afford something lasting so long after COVID. Yep. Well, and not only that, but look at recent box office runs. I mean, it's the flash is estimated to make less money than green lantern. Yeah. Indiana Jones didn't even make its budget back before marketing. Like, no, it's, it's a bad time. Even mission impossible was lower than expected projections. Mm hmm. This past weekend, the only thing exceeding expectations apparently is Sound of Freedom. So there you go. Interesting mm. times we're living in. Um, but the thing I, is... Speaking of the, the the box office numbers, I had Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny as my number one summer sum game pick. Oh my god. I had that... Well, I didn't do the actual game, but I did on a podcast say that that was going to be the number one of June. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man had something to say about that. Look, mm-hmm. I um, just... I just thought, you know, Mangold directing and people wanting a good Indian. I just thought it was going to be a hit. and It wasn't for a lot of reasons that are probably valid. It's a tough time and they can't afford this right now. And I think the studios are going to have to wake up, especially when what they're really asking for is less than a standard budget for a movie. Right. Like some of these Mm -hmm. studios are going to pay like 75, like they want $75 million out of Disney each year. Mm -hmm. It's like. Um, what it's that can be manageable. You make how much profit a year, but the thing is they're thinking about bottom line. The yep. Bob Iger comments were really insensitive. Mm-hmm. It's just like, they're just asking too much. I'm like, are they? I'm curious, like, man, I'm really scared for some of the smaller studios out there. Like I know like a 24 isn't like a small studio anymore, but they're certainly not huge. Like how long can a yeah. 24 really go like this? I'm curious. I mean, they uh, have some. They must have some stuff in pi- pipeline, surely. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like, I think this will affect 2024 film-wise pretty seriously. Um, television earlier than that, like network television, is gonna not look great come fall at this point, where it's yep. just like no shows, mm-hmm. everything syndicated and reruns and reality TV shows. Um, I just think that. My hope is that this doesn't last too long and they all come to their senses like, we should probably do something about this. But knowing people and how stubborn companies can be, this might last a couple months. I have, and it's going to be bad for everybody. Mm-hmm. I have one take, but first, um, I want to give Luke a chance to to say anything that he was thinking about. Well, just to complement your chat GPT AI... It's yes, that's a big part of that, but also, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, this this is me being sick, so apologies for clearing my throat. Uh, but also, it's not just about that; it's also about uh, writers actually being afforded to live. Like you know, there's a mm-hmm. famous yeah. story how the uh, one of the screenwriters of the Bear 
which is currently like you know one of the shows you know people talking about had to <clears throat> max out his credit card to even purchase a suit to attend Golden Globes. And if you have a hit TV show, you probably should do okay. And then when you hear stories of, for example, Sean, Sean Gunn, you know, brother of James Gunn, who was on Gilmore Girls, and how it's still one of the most popular shows on Netflix. It's still mm-hmm. being played thousands and thousands of times every single day. Right? And that's just by my wife. Like, no, and <laughs> to be fair, by me as well, because I love yeah, that yeah. show. But, yeah, it's awesome. It's like and really he said, good. exactly, it is, it is. And he said he's received, what is it, $40, if that, if even that. <clears throat> and he is in most of the episodes. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, like, you know, for for me, yes, AI, we definitely need to nip it in about 100%. But I feel like, you know, more important message is eat the rich. Like, you know, truly eat them. Because, like, you know, like, when you mentioned the only one 75 million, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I've seen this table just, I think, this morning. And they basically compared which each studio would they make annually mm-hmm. and how much is each of those, you know, what the writers asked. And it's, like, always been 0.021. 0.017. So it was literally not even 0. you know, 1%. It wasn't even 1% for many studios, what they've asked for, you know. And the and I think the biggest hypocrisy of what people like Sean Gunn have called out is how the studios are trying to convince everybody, oh, we're hemorrhaging money, we cannot afford, we just simply cannot afford them. And then not only they have salaries in, like, you know, 30 plus million, you know, a year, year, but they have insane bonuses for meeting certain quotas. So, and that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, okay. Wait, so isn't so that we like cannot... Bob Iger's salary is actually only 1 million a year, but he gets like 20 million in bonuses. I think like... it's like 30, I think it's like 27, but yeah. he, he gets, but his he gets own, like a lot. salary is only a million, but then he still gets 30 million a year. No, yeah. no, no. His, his last year's salary was almost half a billion. Like it was like I've seen these all, and there was another comparison table for all these CEOs, and he was he wasn't even the richest one, by the way. It was the guy right. behind Universal Paramount, one of them, mm-hmm. and he was on half a billion a year altogether. And Bob Iger, I think he was just around four hundred million, and that's the hypocrisy they are calling out. The AI stuff, hundred percent, but the hypocrisy of you know the studios being ballsy enough to say, "Oh, we are just hemorrhaging your money left, right, and center, guys. We cannot, no, not even one penny more. No, no, no. So no, eat the rich, stop Hollywood. No, as as, as a movie fan, this cannot go on any longer. We need to support them. We need to su- support everybody because again, I had these, this conversation with my mom on Skype because she was exactly like that. She was like, why should I care about multimillionaires? No, like, I don't really think that's fair. And I explained, you know, the argument. And she was like, oh, oh, wait. Oh, yeah, of course. No, yeah, that makes total sense. So, yeah, no, I'm 100% we should be supportive. My my one take is I think that the SAG strike is remarkably, it's going to remarkably accelerate the WGA strike. And I think... It's from what it sounds like is they're working together really well. And mm-hmm. because I mean, really, they're both after like AI issues, but there's also mm-hmm. other issues. It re- it also really seems like um, what's really cool is seeing like established actors in Hollywood standing up for the little guys. Mm-hmm. Like I know Harrison Ford made $20 million for Indiana Jones on the Dial of Destiny. But it's like, you know, people that are that caliber are still sticking up for people that are, you know, 
tertiary characters or extras or whatnot. So like, well, like the cast of Oppenheimer, they walked out of the UK premiere the right. minute it was announced the SAC, you know, a strike, you know, takes place. So in solidarity, they walked out of the official UK premiere, which is a really cool, exactly, like example of story. I, I, my, my take is I think it's going to accelerate it because there's a million just dead scripts in Hollywood right now. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff that has submit, been submitted over the years. Mm-hmm. And even though the WGA has been on strike, what is to stop them from just pulling pulling out, you know, going into their Indiana Jones, Raiders mm-hmm. of the Lost Ark's t- you know, size warehouse full of totes of, of mm-hmm. scripts that they never produced and uh, and and making them now. Um, you know, like that, I think that's one thing that I've always thought about is, you know, there's scripts commissions all the time. Yep. But now that there's no actors as well, and I I think I don't think that the actors are gonna they're that they're gonna be able to resolve one without the other. I think at this point they're both gonna be like we are like part of our agreement for signing is we will sign the same day the other signs, and yes. um, like it really kind of gets that energy. So it's like I think it's going to rapidly accelerate because without actors you can't make movies. You know, not even you, can, you have a million scripts lying around, but you. Mm-hmm. You can't make the movie without the actors. And I think um, especially not being able to promote the movies um, yep. you know, because it's like like even I saw like Disney's Haunted Mansion is just pulling theme park characters. Yes. Um, to promote it because Lakeith Stanfield is on strike, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's the thing I, I haven't realized until I read it. Not only you can, uh, the actors cannot make the movies, they cannot even promote them. They right. cannot talk mm-hmm. about them. They cannot give interviews. And that's what uh, there was already an article about how one of the CEOs said, and I need to be careful how to word it because this is a family podcast, that the fall season is pretty much done unless they reach a con- like some sort of deal like soonest. And yeah. this is what I think this is what's going to, you know, if there's going to be any speed run, uh, you know, for you know, for this event, this will be it because the studios will not want to lose the fall, so they will eventually have to cave in. There is an emergency fund, so no writer should lose any of their houses or anything. There is an emergency fund; people right. should contribute, so that should not happen. And again, I would not. I would uh, now with actors involved, I would not be surprised if some A-listers like you know Matt Damon. Or Emily Blunt, or something, you know, somebody like that would contribute, like you know, half a mil, because for them that's nothing. But for the, you know, for the screenwriter who wrote this TV show and this movie and has nothing in the in the bank, that's life saving. Do you know? Do you guys know how it works? Like, is it like a majority vote based based off the studios, or do they need unanimous, or like like how long until enough of the little guys eventually just say, "Sorry, Disney, you don't, we don't, we don't care." From- like from what I understand, it needs to be majority war, uh, vote. However, like for example, the SAC uh, has been triggered by unanimous vote. Okay. The SAC, uh, the Fran—I don't know if you guys seen the Fran Dashner speech. It was quite good, and it was triggered by unanimous vote. Which again, obviously, it's unprecedented because now this is the first time since 1960 that uh, both VGA and actors have been on strike simultaneously, and. You know, this will be, you know, and obviously, well, we're kind of, we haven't addressed the big issue with streaming. Yeah. Streaming came and and changed the game for res- residuals, you know, for everything. So streaming needs to be sorted out. And companies like Netflix, Amazon Prime, HBO, all these need to get in line. And obviously nobody wants that. Well, those companies don't want that. Right. 
This was... And I think there's also, like, especially with everything, I mean, it just feels like every decision they're making, like with um, Disney Plus seemingly removing half their catalog, mm-hmm. you know, overnight, like, you know, like, they're, you know, like, uh, like, I know that's a big thing, like, the actors that did Willow want to be compensated for that, like, yeah, you know, because they're no longer eligible for residuals because nobody <laughs> can watch it, like, and that's fair. Well, did and... you see the article about uh, why HBO Max got renamed to just Max? I did not know. Is it just because because the uh, there there was a contract that uh, uh, one of the writers said, "Yeah, I used to have a contract for <clears throat> res- res- uh, residuals for this show, and the contract was with HBO. But now, since it's on Max, I know the con- contract is no longer valid." That's another. So this is not just rebranding. This is a sneaky way how not to pay anybody. Yeah. And this is David Zaslav really just is a giant He's crap. Something. It, I don't <laughs> see the problem is I don't think it's just one person. I think this is the industry, and I think that's why that's why they are on strike. This this needs to change because at the, at the end of the day, in capitalism, bottom line is all that matters. So if you can squeeze any extra pen penny or you know cent in America, you know you need to go for it because you know your shareholders need to be happy. And who cares about art? Who cares about some shows or movies or people who make them. Well, I think that writing was on the wall when Black Widow got sent to Disney Plus and Scarlett Johansson started mm-hmm. that whole entire thing against Disney. Mm-hmm. Because and that I was, was she won her. Yeah, that was the first big situation where it's like, what are we supposed to do about our share? Yeah. Because you, I was just writing about this about Netflix. It's like, there's no traditional way of representing how much money these projects are making. So how are you supposed to figure out that kind of thing? And the whole entire industry has changed. So you have to change with it. And that's what this is. I think one interesting thing about this is like people like us who are like tertiary to the business. Mm -hmm. And there's been some very interesting things popping around and making me like, like, am I supposed to stop doing things too? At this point, I think the main thing is like, I don't get paid mm-hmm, to do yeah. any of this stuff. So I think I'm fine. But mm-hmm. like, there are a lot of influencers, reviewers that have these contracts and make money from the studios and stuff like that. There's a lot of backlash going around in like social media film community about this. And there's been a lot of stuff popping up over the past couple of days and seeing more and more influencers or reviewers just being like i'm not doing anything right now in Mm -hmm. solidarity i'm like i actually have to kind of like think about this situation and i really like all of us um, i really like uh my the two main influencers that i tend to follow for their stuff are um cinema joe and um uh chris i don't know his last name um no uh he goes by movies or therapy on a lot of his Mm -hmm. platforms um, he's the host of Streaming Things podcast and some other stuff. But I, like both of them have kind of said like they're not going to be covering new stuff. Um, and especially like Chris has said, um, like he won't be attending any premieres. He won't mm-hmm. be accepting any things. So his so he's going to pivot to like covering older stuff. You know, checking things off of his watch list. You know, finally finishing Lost and whatnot. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I, mean, that's I think a, that's a good. That's I think that's a good approach. Yeah, because then you could still be a content creator, but you can still you know stand in solidarity with mm-hmm. 
because again, should... you know, like even for a Scarlet case, like you know, I was rooting for her, even though the internet was pretty much against her because they only saw the what's on the surface. Oh, she's already rich. Why is she just you know kicking about about extra couple of million? What difference does it make to her? And I was like, well, don't you see the principle? And right. I was, that's why I was already rooting for her, even you know, even then, because I was like, no, I can see the principle. And you know, as long as it's not, you know, and it, that's the thing. If it's not your money, you will always be like, oh, who, who cares? It's not my money. The moment it touches your wallet, that's when you riot. And well, your 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 argument could also be, you know, like, who cares if if Harrison Ford got paid twenty million dollars to do Indiana Jones? Because mm-hmm. Do you really think he needs the twenty? But it's like that's besides the point. Like, well, um, I feel like that that's that's also going to have to ch- shift and change. I yeah. think we are on the brink of seeing last movie stars, you know, with having such big salaries. I think the budgets will not change. I think the stars will have to, you know, Brad Pitt will have to do a movie for only five million instead of twenty. So, and we and the fifteen we would have paid him otherwise. We split in amongst writers. CGI artists, you know, everybody, like, you know, lights, everybody on the set so they can actually afford, you know, to live. You know, I honestly believe within a few years we are going to see the salary, the actor salaries, you know, the mega stars drop significantly because of this. It'll certainly be interesting. And I, I'm, I'm curious where, because you know that Disney's not just going to, even though it's such a minimal cost, you know, you know, they're not just going to managed to lose that much so Mm -hmm. is it in layoffs is it in you know um uh certain like write-offs removing things from disney plus or whatnot is it green lighting less projects you know what what is it gonna where where is it uh where is it gonna fall i just really hope it doesn't mean that they're gonna like theater ticket prices are gonna increase or like home release stuff is gonna increase yeah i are they when they start premiering their movies at home is it gonna start being you know back up to like VHS prices instead of Blu-ray prices, you know, possibly. So I'm, I'll be cu- really curious to see that, but uh, you know, cause we know that Disney's going to still try to find a way to make a profit out of all of this. And so anyway, mm-hmm. have to keep we, the stockholders happy. Yep. <laughs> we should move on. Uh, cause we could talk about this all day. I want to know what is um, something that you would like to learn. Well, that's an easy, easy one for me. Uh, I've, I've gone back to chess, so I know how to play chess. I, mm-hmm. I think I'm okay. But I would love to become much better than that. So yeah, I want to learn ASL. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. I want to learn how to make a movie. Nice. Then throwing some ideas around with all of my spare time. Well, I feel like now, now more than ever, you can do that pretty much with your phone. Mm-hmm. Sure. That's, I mean, and, um, what's his been, face? Um, Steven Soderbergh. Soderbergh. Yeah, Soderbergh. Yep. Yes. He's actually my nice my spin-off recommendation. Ooh, all right. And he and the movie was shot on an iPhone. Uh, let's get into the coming attractions then. Uh, just since we spent a while doing the WJ, which I'm not mad. You know, it's like a good conversation, but that means let's move the rest of this along. Barbie and Oppenheimer. Um, somebody say a title, and that's the one we'll go with first. Barbie. All right. Barbie is a new film coming out this week. Uh, Barbie suffers a crisis that le- leads her to question um, her world and her existence. This is directed by Greta Gerwig and written by Greta Gerwig as well as Noah Baumbach, starring Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, of course. Uh, but we also have Kingsley Benadir, Emma Mackey, um, Will Ferrell, Dua Lipa, apparently, John Cena, Helen Mirren, Simu Liu, Kate McKinnon, Michael Sarah, America Ferreira. list goes on and on and on and on and on. Barbie... Coming out this week. What do you guys think about this one? Um, your schedule doesn't take any effect. Your 
Um, budget doesn't take any effect. The only thing holding you back from seeing this movie is your free will. Are you checking it out in theaters? Are you going to wait till you can check it out at home? Um, like pay to rent at home or street wait till it's on the streaming service you already pay for, or are you just not interested in this movie? Um, Shane, let's start with you since you picked selected Barbie theaters easy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. Well, uh, <laughs> we'll get, we'll get Luke. Where are you at? Come on, Barbie. Let's go to the theater. <laughs> I'm in theaters as well. Um, I think the closer we get to this movie, the more I'm excited about it. And like, the fact that it's Greta Gerwig like makes me think that there's going to be something really like sneaky special about this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think people are just expecting the equivalent of you know mid two thousands. They're expecting you know like Transformers without all the action. You know, <laughs> um, but I think there's going to be something really sneaky special about this movie. Besides Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, we're all going to have an existential crisis along with Barbie. I mean, it's probably pull a Forky. It's going to pull a Lego movie. I really wonder how it's going to open and how, if it's going to make as much money as everybody on movie Twitter believes. Because I have my doubts. I have my doubts. Tracking was up to $115 million opening weekend, but how everything's been tracking way too high, it appears. I don't know. It's going to make more than Oppenheimer. I. Yeah, yeah, it's for sure going to make more than Oppenheimer. That's what's like. I'm curious. Is actually this going to be the number one box office of the summer? I is think it? it has a good chance because, like, I think a lot there's going to be a, like every mother's going to want to take their daughter. Um, you know, every every person that has a story with Barbie, but also what they've managed to do is also like capture a lot of male audience. You know, I mean, I I think that the three of us who are in the super excited for this movie are like part of all of Sif Pop saying. This movie cannot come soon enough, you know, like, mm-hmm. and now granted, we're the movie people, right? But like, I was going to say, I think like people like my brother are really excited for this. And, you know, like, I, I mean, just have a sneaky feeling. Do you guys remember Scott Pilgrim versus the world coming out? No, because all the movie people like us were excited and all the movie people like us believed it's going to do gangbusters. And then nobody showed up because only the movie people showed up. And this is different, though. Well, like as of right now, AMC came out and said that 20 million A-list members have already bought tickets for Barbie oh. and Oppenheimer in the same yep. day. Okay, mm-hmm. so like, no, I'm hope this look, is looking I'm real. Hope, I hope I'm incorrect. I'm just you know maybe I'm speaking to uh, to the wrong audience. But everybody besides you know movie people I speak to, hey, are you gonna go see Barbie? Literally, they look at me like, "No, why would I go see Barbie in a cinema? What's well, wrong with you?" Maybe it's in America. Everybody, wants I was like, a "Maybe it's Barbie. an America thing." Yeah, I, I was gonna like... say. So maybe, and I or, and I also wonder, maybe maybe it's gonna do great domestically, but internationally. I, I look. I hope it's gonna do great. I know. I I really hope it's gonna do great. I just hope it's not gonna be one of those, you know, well, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Let's also compare like. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World was based off of an IP that mm-hmm. had a cult following, not a widespread, mm-hmm. you know, I, existing IP. I didn't, I'd never heard of Scott Pilgrim vs. the World before the movie. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but like Michael Sarah was a name, but he wasn't a Margot Robbie or Ryan Gosling. True. Um, and most of the people in that movie either got famous after that movie or like were mildly famous, and this was something that helped their career. You know, mm-hmm. like. Um, well- like a Brie Larson or a, um, Chris Evans. Um, I don't know. He he might fall into that. Like was kind of a star, but not like a superstar or anything like that. Well, but I, I was he thinking was a Fantastic the, Four already. 
that's what I was great, thinking. But like, yeah, but he was he wasn't a household name, but he wasn't. Yeah. You know, he wasn't yeah. Chris Evans yet. Yeah. He was uh, the the the. The girl, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, you know, this like mm-hmm. kind of launched her career. You know, and, and I think also like, I think movie people knew of Edgar Wright, but like Edgar Wright wasn't the name that he is now. Mm. Uh, this, I think well, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World was the movie that made him. Oh, mm-hmm. Edgar Wright, you know, versus Barbie has such IP attached to it. And Ryan Gosling and Margot Robbie are two of the like hottest celebrities. I mean, in, I mean, sure, in terms of look, but mo- I meant that in terms of yeah, like popularity. Yeah. Um, sure. You know, and and Greta Gerwig's got a lot of traction since, you know, Little Women. And I mean, I don't I, I don't think it's one of those that people go back. Oh, Greta Gerwig. Cool. You know, yeah. except for the movie people. Mm-hmm. But I think no. it's a, I, I don't think that's a fair comparison at all. I think. Look, look, like I'm look, I, I'm not saying it's not going to make money. It's going to make money. But I don't think I just slightly worried it's not going to make as much money as people predicted. I think, I think it might it's going to make more. <laughs> OK, again, I we'll, think we'll see. I think this might run away with the summer. <laughs> I think this could be a a greatest showman situation too, where mm. not only is it the stars in it, but the music's going to help a lot too, because sure. the soundtrack mm-hmm. on this is insane. Sure. You have Dua Lipa, you have Billie Eilish, you have mm-hmm. Nicki Minaj, and how many other people? Like the, the soundtrack is just as star-studded as the people in the yep. movie. But so, it's not... That's not like this isn't, but it's not a musical. It is. That's what I was asking. Like, there's actual musical numbers. Like Ryan Gosling has a musical number. Well, I knew there was at least the like Barbie's Dream House has the musical number Mm -hmm. and whatnot. But that's what I was. I was saying like Greatest Showman like was a musical. I don't know. And a bad movie without the music, and it still made a ton of money. Terrible movie. I was. I was thinking, is this more along the lines of like Spider Man Into the Spider Verse, where it has a killer soundtrack? That fits the movie well, but no, I think there is going to be musical numbers, but I don't know. It's like, it's not primarily musical, is it? I don't know. Can you say what this movie is? Nope. So you're going to find out. <laughs> and that's I, my one potential concern is that how many people actually know what this movie really is. And hopefully it doesn't have a Blade Runner 2049 effect where it's like, oh, wait a minute. What the hell is this movie about? Mm-hmm. But I think there's enough going for it that it's going to turn out to be something that's going to surprise a lot of people. I feel like we'll definitely see after the second weekend. Like the first weekend, I yeah, def, you know, I'll, if will it surpass Op- Oppenheimer? Possibly. I still don't think so. lose the sound of freedom. I still don't lose the sound of freedom. This is the weekend that Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny oh, yes. finally earned. <laughs> hey, Sound uh, of Freedom jumped up almost 35% this weekend mm, wow. in terms nice. of his box office it's it's interesting that's the only mm-hmm. thing that seems to be tracking enough money right now at the box office the next couple of weeks are going to be very interesting because after this weekend dead mm. like the well, whole rest of the summer what do you mean the mech to the trenches <laughs> i mean i'm gonna be there uh, me too before <laughs> so, anyway b- before we fully get into oppenheimer i want to ask this question before I ask you how excited you are, um, if you could only see Bob, Barbie or Oppenheimer this weekend, which one are you seeing, Shane? Oppenheimer. Luke? Oppenheimer. I'm going Barbie. Like, Let's go I Barbie. Just, 
like I think like it's mostly like I'm trying I'm trying I'm just trying to gauge because I have a feeling we're all we we were, I had a feeling we were all going to land in theaters for both of them mm-hmm. like most of the the mm-hmm. Sif Pop staff, mm-hmm. um you know I, I I and I think a lot of the population again would like to see both especially anybody that has an A list stubs right twenty million of them mm-hmm. both movies one day like but I'm just sitting there like if I can only watch one this weekend it's bar- my my wife asked me if you can only watch one um ever not just this weekend but you if you watch oppenheimer you can never see barbie if you watch barbie you can never see oppenheimer which one is i said barbie and you know part of that is because i could read a book about oppenheimer like um <laughs> uh, but well, part of will it is you ever like, experience what the atomic explosion is going to be it's that's the thing mm. it's an interesting it's it's an interesting question and it's more interesting asking it beforehand mm-hmm. but i, I don't you know, know shane people, people were fun. asking could you ever experience something like what the Titanic filmed? And, you know, you could spend $250,000 and go see the Titanic yourself. <laughs> I'll pass. <laughs> um, it's one of those kinds of things. Like, obviously, Barbie's the much more fun experience. Uh-huh. Yes. But, like, as somebody who loves film. How do you know that Oppenheimer's not a musical? <laughs> you know what? I don't. But it's going to be Les Mis level depressing musical. Mm-hmm. How how amazing would that be if I mean because Christopher Knowles also hyping up this sex scene, which by the way is giving me all sorts of cringe. Because has the dude ever directed a sex scene in any of his? Well, that's, that's why it's so breakthrough for him. Like like he doesn't know what, how what to if, show what if, what, if the, what if the sex scene is a musical? <laughs> I heard all Albert this... Einstein is gonna have a rapsolo on, in Oppenheimer. It's supposed to be very lit. <laughs> it's. Yeah, where's the Dua Lipa single uh, for Oppenheimer? All she's, a, she's on a secret subject. From a from like a cinephile perspective, I do not want to miss out <laughs> on watching Oppenheimer. And like, is this gonna be the one for Nolan? Even if this is the best film that he makes, he still has a ridiculous uphill battle trying to win anything this year, mm-hmm. Oscar wise, because he has mm-hmm. to go toe to toe with. Scorsese and Dune mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Ridley Scott, Fincher, well, Bradley mm-hmm. Cooper. There's a lot going on, and maybe even Barbie. We'll have I, to maybe. see. I think we can disqualify Dune because they looks like they hate Denis Villeneuve. You know, the Academy they hate they hate him, so we can disqualify him. Well, we do so hate French fine. people in America because yeah. you know. Um, I that's what I love about. Is he about French it. or French? He's French Canadian. He's French Canadian, yeah. Yeah, I no, think. French Canadians are fine. It's just French French. Um. <laughs> That's what fascinated me with 2021 Oscars when every technical category went to the, you know, Dune, and the person on top of the charge was not even nominated. I was like, what? This is just was maddening. Mm-hmm. But it was you know, even no- worse than Mad Max because at least George Miller was nominated. Yeah. No, but to your point, Shane. To your point, so, Shane. So we're exactly. all in theaters for Oppenheimer then. Yes. Um, yes. I'm going to be the, the least enthusiastic about it, though. And I think I've kind of, like, expressed some of my concerns here. So I'm going to, like, take a back seat. I just, I wonder if this is the movie where the film community realized that, like, Nolan is great, but we've let him get too far up his own ass. And, like, I, I wonder if this is, like, it, it feels like this movie is, if it's anybody besides Nolan, I think we're all like, yeah, it looks good. But because it's the next Christopher Nolan movie... But like, let's stop pretending that the dude's never made a good, like, never made a bad movie. Like, dude made Dark Knight Rises. Like, but you know, if you a uh, bad movie is Dark Knight Rises level, if 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 that's the criteria of a bad movie, I w- like we would all die happy. Make you know, if had we made that movie, do you realize that? 
No. <laughs> this is like, yeah. No. Like, well, his, I think, best, his best. I think one bad. person in this podcast feels differently than the other two because yeah. I still yeah. really like The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, and I don't. And, and no, honestly, here's the thing. Like, Tenant was the one where Christopher Nolan's head was so far up his ass. Yes. Well, that's yes. that's that was my and other big point. But I know. Is him pulling back and making a biopic. I'm curious, um, man. I'm I'm really curious about that though because I, Shane, I know at least at the time you were a big defender of Tenet. Um, I haven't seen it. Not since really. That movie and- makes me mad. <laughs> he literally told us to be stupid and not think about his movie in the <laughs> movie. There. That I, that was the point of no return for me, and I'm like, you better turn the ship around. Well, I just like I I have not seen it since theaters, and I don't think I've ever thought about I should watch Tenet again. Not look, I'm going to watch it again and I would love to, especially you know with subtitles on and being able to pause and mm-hmm. whatnot. But it's like it's just a movie that has almost completely gone from my mind. If it wasn't Nolan, I don't know that anybody would have ever referenced that movie past 2022. You know? Like Which is fair. um so I I just wonder and 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 I'm also concerned because you gotta think that it was a huge bidding war. After Nolan said he's not doing any more movies with Warner, I think you know so who's who's public who's funding this. You, it's you a know Universal. Yeah, you got to think that part of Universal's pitch was you can do whatever you want and we won't tell you no. Yeah, but like, this you, you got to think like a fraction of Tenant. So for them, it wasn't that like they threw out a hundred million dollars for Oppenheimer and they make Fast and Furious movies. <laughs> So like but, they made two hundred, they spent two hundred ninety million dollars on a turd like F ten. Unfortunately, didn't make money though. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, well, I, not like, in America, I, but else. like that's a that's a good point in terms yeah. of the money. But I wonder if like maybe this movie like they're we'll we'll have to see once we can see the full I movie. Just but like, feel like a biopic is a safe choice for yes. somebody after making something like Tenant, yes, which was literally sure. a blank check movie. From Warner Brothers, they wrote him a two hundred and fifty million dollar blank check to do whatever the hell. And yeah, but that's it's like I gotta think that he was just told do whatever you want, and he made a three hour movie starring every white guy on the planet. And I'm excited to see it, but that three hour runtime scares me. It doesn't scare me. Normally, three hours don't, but I I've, I've just realized I don't know like. Movies don't need to be three hours. No, I love some, Avengers well, Endgame, but it doesn't need to be three hours. Not, not every, every movie has to be three hours. Correct. Sure. It depends well, on the story. Let me let me tell you which which version of Oppenheimer I'm more excited about, as opposed to Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Especially with kind of the way that it looks like it's going. I'm a lot more excited for the the duo behind First Man. You know, the Damien Chazelle mm. directed um, I'm I, sorry, I can't remember who wrote it off the top of my head, but like that would still be three hours too after Babylon. I mean, fair, but like it just it feels like this is in a in a very similar. I think this movie is is is, and maybe I don't know if it's even trying to hide it. I feel like this movie. I've got writers Josh Sing, Josh Singer and James R. Hansen for First Man, by the way. Um, but I think how much of this movie do you think is going to take place after the explosion? After they successfully detonate a nuke. Well, that's the thing. I that's why the three hour runtime. Run I I think if it's gonna be the way, the way I I believe it's justified. I wouldn't be surprised if it was intercut, like almost half and half. Probably you know it's not gonna be hour and a half exactly, but I wouldn't be surprised if you know 
we see 20 minutes him working on a bomb and then 10 minutes after. And it would be kind of like um, Better Call Saul, what they did with every episode starting in the future. And then he would go mm. back in the past. I wouldn't wouldn't put it past Nolan. And that's why I'm not afraid of three-hour runtime. Because, again, we get the story of a person who literally created the ultimate weapon. Who gave us the power to annihilate everybody and ourselves. So... And we get the, you know, not only how he built it, but what happened to him after. Because can you imagine that being you? And that's to me, that's the most well, intriguing that's why, part. That's why I was saying I'm really excited for like, like I would be more excited for like the first man team behind it because I feel like first man explored a lot of those like behind the scenes emotional trauma. I think um, that's the I think that judgment we can we can save after we see the movie. I agree. I don't know, like I don't know. Like, we cannot I, judge the script until we've seen it. But basically, and, by degree alone, the you know Killian Murphy being the man. Sure. And, you know, like to me, like that, you know, Christopher Nolan is a cherry on because you said if, if it wasn't Christopher Nolan, you know, we wouldn't rush to the cinema. I think if I seen the cast as stacked as Oppenheimer is and not Murphy, you know, Emily Blunt, Florence Pew Pew, you know, all these other great people. And on Christopher Nolan is just cherry on top of a very juicy cake. And I'm there just for those maybe people. Maybe I'm just maybe I'm just over the Nolan hype. I don't know. Like. Well, you're obviously not over the Chazelle hype. Yep. No, not at all. No, because I well, love and that And nobody one. gave a crap um, about First Man. Nobody saw it. I still haven't so, seen it. I did. I saw it. I was one well, of like three people. <laughs> we're not part of this conversation yeah, of like, are people going to see it? We're people that see all movies. Yeah. I literally try to see every movie. Um, it's one of those kinds of things where it's just like, you could be either excited for it or you're not. It's, we got to see the movie first bef- and- we're not going to get an Oppenheimer movie from Damien Chazelle. Uh, if we do, I'd be very surprised. And if we were, I don't think anybody would care that much at this point. Fair. So I think it's I, debatable, but just I think to, it's to your just, point. Sorry. I think it's just Tenet left such a, such a bad taste in my mouth that it's no, Nolan being Nolan's next project doesn't excite me right now. Now, I would love for Oppenheimer to blow me away and oh. for me to, to come up, come away singing its praises. But again, I think just Tenet left a bad taste in my mouth. And the idea of him going to a new studio thinking they probably told him, do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And he made a three-hour movie with a sex scene from a guy that's never directed a sex scene before. <laughs> like, um, I don't understand how that's I, such a big hang-up. No, yeah. It's, it's, and I don't that, know I why mean, that, this that is, one is That one is mostly a joke. But I'm just okay. like... But the whole... I got to think that part of his agreement was was you let me make my movie and you stay out of my way. Well, and many many big directors had these kind of contracts. They are not just very rare. Like Hitchcock was the same. And look, I love Babylon. It was one of my favorite movies. But somebody tried to tell Damien Chazelle no mm-hmm. three or mm-hmm. four times. You I know? still haven't watched that, but we'll, we'll watch it soon. Well, it's coming up on my one of my streaming platforms next Friday, so I will finally watch it. Well, no, but when it comes to Oppenheimer, like you need to believe. Like I, I would rather have like you know Tenet. Fair enough, but like I would rather have somebody of Nolan's caliber to you know miss. And miss spectacularly than just aim well, maybe, for maybe this being is the safe. other part of it too because the Shane has brought up like it's a safe play mm-hmm. doing a mm-hmm. biopic and I think it's going to be a little bit different of a biopic I do mm-hmm. think it's actually going to fall more in line of you know like that first man I I I would say I think this movie is going to be 
more about two thirds about the consequences of making this bomb and a third mm-hmm. about actually making the bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the bomb gets detonated an hour into the movie. And that's all we've seen from the trailers. You know, mm-hmm. um, if, if every frame that we've seen has been in the first hour uh, or hour 15 or whatever, you know, yep. um, that would be a very Nolan thing to do. And I would be all here for it. But I um, like it, it's such a safe pick. Like, even though Tenet left kind of a bad taste in my mouth, like I really appreciated that Nolan swung for it, you know, because mm-hmm. like Inception's my like fourth favorite movie of all time. So mm-hmm. like. I really like when he just swings for the fences and he does something creative and new. And the fact but, that he's doing a, the fact that he is doing a biopic is almost like, oh, like. But it's not about a biopic about, you know, I just watched Joy the other week. It's not about a biopic about a woman who made up a mob. It's about a guy who literally gave us a device to, you know, destroy everything and everybody on this planet right now. So if I, I don't think it's as safe as as I don't honestly don't see as this is a safe choice, especially with that cast. Especially with that cast, I don't see how nobody, how anybody can not be excited just by like the first three, four names, and then you go, back, you know, to the list. You know, Matt Damon is not even a main star, and he's like, you know, number five, six, and it's Matt Damon. It's in, to me like I understand what you mean by safe, but I also don't. I mean, in the terms of two thousand twenty-three, a big studio like Universal giving a hundred million dollar budget to this movie is not mm-hmm. the biggest gamble. And I I trust in what, how Nolan's going to make this more than just your standard biopic. We're going to talk about a standard biopic on this Mm -hmm. episode Mm -hmm. that doesn't feel very bold in any way. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is going to be that movie. Mm -hmm. So, no, I agree. I think, I don't know. I just, I think there's also so much of me that is trying not to get too excited for movies anymore because. I am tired of leaving disappointed for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Well, I think whether it's the whether it's the movie world. actually sucks like The Flash or I probably just had too high expectations like Mission Impossible, which I think was a really good movie, but I didn't love it as much as I wanted to. So, like I think everybody needs to cool their expectations because mm-hmm. if I have to hear every single movie coming out's going to be God's gift to the world and then people are mad that it's not like Yeah. The masterpiece. Meg 2, the trench, God's gift to the world. <laughs> well, this one, this one will be, though. Uh, yeah. It's insane how people, like, pick apart every single movie to, like, every little detail mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. even seeing it and then have this whole entire movie constructed in their mind yes. without just being like, I'm going to go watch an artist, do what an artist does, and I'm going mm. to appreciate what they do. We'll see if I like it or not. Star Wars, MCU, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. Exactly. No, she. Yeah, you hit it. Hit it on a nail. Just you know. No. Exactly. Like, I don't need need to know exactly what Oppenheimer's going to be. I don't need to know exactly what Barbie's going to be. I don't yep. want to know. No. I'm sick of hearing casting news for 100%. Deadpool three. Yes, because yeah, I don't want to know every yes. single thing that's going to happen in this movie before I even see it. Hundred percent, especially yeah. people on Twitter spoiling everything. Mm-hmm. So I'm just looking forward to in a few days. I'm going to be hopping a train in New York. I'm seeing both of these movies and hoping for the best and looking forward to enjoying them. Same. I want to. I just want to reiterate before we move on. I'm still in the theaters camp for both of these movies. I'm just. I guess I'm trying to be a little bit more cautiously optimistic rather than just 
um, ignorantly optimistic. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm trying to temper expectations so that way I can up, up and not just about Oppenheimer, but about most things, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. about most movies. Um, no, that's fair. I'm trying to just temper expectations so I can enjoy things more. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, uh, which I think also falls in line a lot with just, you know, recent conversations that we've been having about Sif Pop, about film criticism and whatnot, and about mm-hmm. and not only at Sif Pop, but I think around, you know, film Twitter and TikTok mm-hmm. and all that, you know. Um, but anyway, let's move on. Um, we'll talk about um, the two Charlie Chaplin focused films. Uh, this uh this week um give a little bit of history of that but first you've heard some thoughts from shane you've heard some thoughts from luke if you want to hear more thoughts from them where can they hear them luke let's start with you so on letterboxd and movies lost or i write uh reviews every monday and thursday on my blog lostinmovies.co.uk and shane easiest thing is to go to the wasteland reviewer instagram page where i shamelessly plug all the things that i do at sif pop scribe magazine a couple of my podcasts that I do, and most importantly to me, the Wasteland Reviewer YouTube channel, which I will be celebrating seven years in a couple weeks. Congrats. My first review was for Sausage Party. Wow. What, what an experience. <laughs> what a way to start. Uh, <laughs> and Started I from had, the bottom, now we actually I like Sausage Party. Uh, I did enjoy Sausage <laughs> Party too, but my video was literally in the dark because I had no lighting on my laptop webcam. I've come a long way. Nice. Nice. So... Um, and a quick reminder, if you want to be one of the cool kids over at Patreon, patreon.com slash sifpopwr, uh, where you can hear my thoughts on um, early access to these episodes and er, and exclusive thoughts on every new release uh, movie and TV show that I check out this year. So uh, moving on to the uh, SIF topic, I think, do we want to start with Chaplin? Like, sure. I thought we could start from the modern times as it's referenced in Chaplin, but the it's your, yeah, I'm game for water. I'm curious, like, cause, cause I watched Chaplin before I watched Modern Times, and I watched Chaplin first partly because I had a little bit more free time, and that's a uh. that's an hour longer of a movie. But also, yeah. like, I have seen several Chaplin movies before. Mm-hmm. I I also kind of want, and I think watching it before made me appreciate some things about hmm. Modern okay. Times that I. So, um, but I, it just kind of feels more natural out of the Oppenheimer conversation. Fair um, I so, did it the other way around this morning, but yeah, we can start <laughs> with Chaplin. Let's start with Chaplin. I think that'll be fun. Um, I, I think they're ultimately going to blend together, but mm-hmm. that's fine. Um, real quick, I did want to pull up, though, the um, the things here. Um, now, I had selected... Uh, I had made all of the, the schedule get ready, and... Um, I think Luke had suggested. I'm, I've got. I've got it pulled up now. I can actually confirm. Um, yeah, Shane yeah. had put Modern Times as his second pick, um, and Luke had Chaplin as his second. Yes. But because of the um, the pick of Old Boy and the scheduling, we I didn't really want to worry. Like focus on the Christmas schedule. And I saw the pairing there. I'm like, I think that would be really interesting to do a film and a biopic about the filmmaker. Um, so that's kind of where things landed. I thought, you know what, let's, let's put those two together and let's have them on and we'll talk about it together and it'll be a lot of fun. So, and, um, I'm having fun so far. So, um, Chaplin is a 1992 biopic, um, from Richard Attenborough, um, that, uh, at least directed by Richard Attenborough. 
stars uh, lots of people, most notably Robert Downey Jr. and then Geraldine Chaplin as well, Chaplin's granddaughter. Um, There's Moira Kelly, Anthony Hopkins, Marissa Tomei in there for a cup of coffee. Same with Dan Aykroyd, Penelope Ann Miller, Kevin Kline, Mila Jovovich, Kevin Dunn. Lots of people like Diane Lane just showing Mm up for Mm -hmm. like 20 minutes halfway through the movie and you're like all right diane lane and she wasn't like a nobody at the time either you know um uh james woods yeah like seemingly everywhere you go (laughs) seemingly everywhere you go is is a um is a is 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 a notable person so chaplin um luke i want to start real quick um there was a list of couple hundred movies you could have picked from and this was one of your top picks. Uh, why is that? Uh, because it was under C, and it was one of the first ones I saw. Mm-hmm. And also, mm-hmm. on, on a more serious note, I've always heard about it. I've never seen it. And I thought, okay, let's, you know, I've seen quite a few Chaplin movies, so let's get, you know, the biopic out of the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, real quick, aside from Modern Times, um, which Chaplin films have you seen? City Lights, uh, Gold Rush, The Kid, uh, The Immigrant, uh, and Couple, The Great Dictator, and okay. I think like one or two more, like the short, short ones, like twenty minute ones. Had you seen Modern Times, or is th- or is that a first watch? No, no, no. I have seen it when I started my cinephile journey about fifteen years ago, almost. I think it must cool. be about that. So this was, you know, a second watch, but uh, it felt like a first because I've forgotten quite a few things. Sure. Um, all right, Shane, what is your history with, uh, Chaplin, the 1992 I, film and then his, and then the actual person's filmography? I think I watched this for the first time back in college because I got the film for like a couple of dollars used at Princeton Record Exchange where I spent a lot of money in <laughs> college, uh, buying used movies. This is probably the third time that I've watched this. So like I own this. And in terms of Chaplin's films, I think I've seen all the ones that Luke said and also have watched a couple other ones. Um, I just watched one. It's about uh, him faking being a preacher in uh, Mm. Texas. And like, that's a fun one too. But I've seen most of the big ones. Mm -hmm. And I think he's one of the uh, directors that like maybe someday I'll do and welcome to the wasteland. The only tricky mm-hmm. thing is he has like 80 movies and I'm already doing that with John Ford right now. It's going to take me over a year. I mean, but they are short enough. You could probably like do two together on one. I could. Or, or if you really wanted to be fair, even I could. Five. Yeah. I could. Um, Trying to give them each their own spotlight. Mm-hmm. Sure. Guess. Sure. But yeah. yeah, it's, I I really enjoy Chaplin. I don't think I watched any of his films until probably after college. I'm pretty sure I watched this biopic before I watched any of his actual movies. Mm-hmm. That's a lie. I watched The Great Dictator in mm-hmm. film club because I almost had to star- stop a fight because how aggressive a uh, debate started happening after us watching the film and discussing it. <laughs> it got very radical when one of my, my friends who's very radical, said that um, his, his little tidbit was like the Jewish people should not have just lied down and let the Nazis do what they did. They should have rose up. And I'm like, oh, my. And then What's that his name, just... Kanye? What a brilliant idea. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds like a Kanye thing. That just sounds like something Kanye West would say. 21-year-old Shane was like, oh, no. Uh, In my head, I'm like, I need to stop this right now because people started yelling. So, yes, yeah. I did watch that in 
college and sure started an interesting conversation. Um, I, for the, I, this is the first time me seeing this um, Chaplin uh, and the films that I've seen of Chaplin's were the only the ones that I've covered for this podcast. So I'm just looking, it looks like Joseph was on both episodes. They were both for the goats because we did the kid in November of 2021. And then just last, I think, like May or June, we did uh, The Great Dictator. So I had only seen those two, and then I saw this biopic, and then I saw Modern Times, uh, and that's still the only Chaplin filmography that I've seen. Um, But uh, just kind of wanted to get a little bit of context Mm -hmm. out there. Uh, So uh, fair to say that we're going to be spoiling both of these movies, but it's it's interesting because, like, I don't know that Modern Film, Modern Times is a movie that, like, there's enough to spoil and Chaplin's a biopic. So, um, you know, uh, but still for the sake of everything, here's your official spoiler warning. Uh, let's dive into it. Um, do you like it, love it, hate it, dislike it, or think it's just okay. We're going to go in that same order. Luke. So for Chaplin, uh, low side of love it. Okay. And Shane, I know you said you, 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 it's, it's weird. You said like, you didn't, you don't remember liking it. Well, you own it, but you seem to no, almost s- throw a di- you, you seem to throw a disc comment toward it towards it when we were talking about. I'm saying it's a pretty standard biopic. Like mm-hmm. when Got people it. make comments that it's like, it felt like a Wikipedia page. It kind of does narratively. It's just like beat by beat. This is what happened in mm-hmm. his life. Mm-hmm. I do really sure. like this movie. And a lot of that goes to, Robert Downey Jr., who's incredible, mm-hmm. but I do really like this movie. So high side, I like it. Yeah, um, I'm going like right in the middle of you two, which is the slimmest margin I can. Like I'm teetering high side, I like it. Low side, I loved it. I, I mean, if you ask me, like, what do you feel about the movie? I'd, I'd say love it, but like that would be my first reaction. But it, it's a pretty unenthusiastic one because mm-hmm. um, I do think there are some issues, especially in terms of like it feels. <laughs> relatively normal for um for that and it also like i f- I think that this movie does suffer from pacing and i mean that more so in the sense of it tries to cover his entire life mm-hmm. in a two hour and 24 two hour 23 minute movie like including yep. credits and i and i saw in the trivia for this movie that the original cut was full like they they shot four and a half hours worth of footage and the original cut was supposed to be like not that long but longer than two hours and 23 minutes and yep. You, I just felt that immediately. So, uh, it probably would have like felt more did fleshed out because there's definitely things where it's like, oh, oh I had this wife. I said five, five yeah. lines about her in my biography. Yeah. And it, you can get that. You get that feeling where some of the things like, well, I had this wife. Mm-hmm. On to the next one. So, you, <laughs> so, and I think they even have a little like wink. At the oh, here we go. About it too. The the original cut was nearly four hours long. Over two hundred hours of footage was shot. Now, when they're saying the original cut, they're saying um, the like when the director just took everything that he liked and put it together. This yes. is before they start deleting scenes, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's natural for them to put yes. everything together and then start cutting. So this wasn't like you know release the Attenborough cut or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. um, it could be himself said it hurt the movie. He himself yeah. is on the record it, it, saying that he doesn't uh, d- didn't like the movie because he he preferred his four hour cut. And honestly, like I think I'd be really interested in that 
Uh-huh. Um, I think it would make the movie ultimately a better experience. You know, almost like, you know, we talked about um, on the podcast, we talked about Amadeus a couple weeks ago. I'm like, I could, I don't think I could imagine a two hour version of Amadeus, you know? Uh-huh. Um, I don't want to watch so, that. <laughs> so, right. So like kind of similarly here, I my, my main reasons for my main knocks on the movie is simply it feels like a four hour movie that was cut down to two twenty three, but there's there's still plenty to love. Um, mm-hmm. Like, but there's definitely like there's also scenes where it feels like there was. It's not just oh, like everything feels rushed. It's like there are scenes where it just feels like there was one missing. Like mm-hmm. if like um, I thought that the movie like and it, it feels like most of it was cut towards the end because there's a moment where like he's riding high and then all of a sudden there's a brief J Edgar Hoover scene and then it's like the next scene is him doing the great dictator and then it's like he's exiled and it's like that was quick um like i feel like that's the meat and potatoes of this story you know uh but uh yeah it, it, like it just feels like there are scenes missing because it almost feels like in that great t- great dictator scene where you're almost like is he kind of going insane and then it's just like let's move past it and it's like i'm not interested in that let's go back <laughs> okay. and i think in this cut of the film they have to rely too heavily on the made up interviewer played by anthony hopkins to fill in mm-hmm. gaps and on the j edgar hoover scenes to fill in gaps yep mm-hmm. so i just think like and now i'm fascinated i do actually want to see <laughs> Richard Attenborough's full cut of this movie. Sure. And because, like, he did Gandhi before. It's not like that was a lean biopic. Yeah. Um, it's a it's an interesting thing that you definitely feel it. And it's still enjoyable. And there's some really great performances. Like, Robert Downey Jr. is amazing. And mm-hmm. I love Al Pacino. I even really love watching Scent of a Woman. Mm-hmm. But come on, <laughs> like there's, I, there's some stronger performances than hoo-ha, yabba, dabba do. I uh, feel like I feel like for that, I, 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 I have a guess why that happened. You know, first, it was overdue for Al Pacino. Yeah. And second, second, in 1992, the Academy members would still be quite old and white enough to remember Chaplin. So I think it was mo- almost kind of like a middle finger to, uh, you know, Robert Downey Jr. Like, nope, nope. I, I will say, like, he was a great chaplain, even though I wasn't really sure about the English accent. But, sure. but not the worst English accent. And I'll come back to it because there was the one character I was like, OK, we need to stop and t- talk about this for a bit. But no, like he was OK because he didn't really try accent like proper one. But what he tried, I was like, not quite sure. Okay. Is that how he sounded? (laughs) It's so interesting because like Robert Downey Jr. is great. Mm -hmm. I love Kevin Kline as Douglas Fairbanks. He is so charismatic in this movie. Mm -hmm. Diane Lane just like strolls into this movie so effortlessly charismatic. Mm -hmm. And I loved her. And she was definitely the wife that I felt the worst for since, mm-hmm. like, she was really trying. She was connecting with his kids and she'd just show up and he's just so absorbed into all of his work. Mm-hmm. And I will have to, I do have to say, any scene with him and Mila Jehovich in it made me feel gross because, like, she looked really young. Well, in this she movie. was 16. She looked really young in this movie, and I did make a joke watching this, and it was just like, everybody gives Leo crap, 
and then mm-hmm. Charlie Chapman strolls and is like, "Hold my beer." Um, and that, that was that was the part of the movie I I liked not for these this reason, but actually for this reason because that you know Richard Attenborough was smart enough not to shy away from this because yeah. it is on record his so... first two three wives were 15, 16. basically when he met them they were around that age me he made he might have waited for for a bit before he married them but you know it is definitely. Today, if he would have been 100% cancelled. Well, and even his last wife, like, mm-hmm. he was in his 50s and she was, I yeah. think, 25. Um, but at least she wasn't young. 16. Um, so I definitely made a note in the movie. Um, or in, in my notes, I have like 10 notes. One of them is, it's weird that they aren't addressing the underage girls thing. And then like I made a sub note later. I'm like, oh, they are cool like because it felt like they just weren't addressing it for a while and then it and then they just they they really went into it and it's like good you know like it felt like a really odd like and i get it right you can you could say part of it is just right like people had different social norms back then you know Mm -hmm. as as you know somebody who studied different cultures you know especially you know in, in college where i studied like biblical cultures it's like some cultures this things these things were just fine and Mm -hmm. you know you just move past it and you say it was fine then it's not fine now or like you know it was a different culture different time different reasons yada 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 Mm -hmm. you you present the story but that doesn't make it okay today but like the movie definitely goes to say like hey that was probably weird then too well Um, even the movie says you know even the movie makes one of the wives makes a cheeky remark or or sorry too soon to be wife oh i think i'm too old for you yeah yeah and i think that was the Yeah, and I think there was the wink at the camera, like kind of like, yeah, yeah, we know, we know, like that's almost to me felt like Richard Attenborough says, look, we know, but this movie is not about this, so we're gonna move and along. It's, it's nice that like the movie addresses it without it being the main focal point. Like yeah. this, this isn't a expose of Charlie Chaplin's love life. It's mm-hmm. it's still a Chaplin biopic, mm-hmm. and it addresses his complicated history with women mm-hmm. um in a i thought tasteful way that seemed condemning but not like hardcore condemning not like uh like crazy you know um this th- is what the movie is now i think the movie is trying to look at uh, look uh, look at him as a person rather than as you know as the result of of his actions you know meaning for example yes he like that's what I wrote on my letter uh, in my letterbox uh, review. He liked them young, but also he didn't shake hands with Nazis. You know, so that was kind of a okay, okay counterbalance, oh. I guess. <laughs> it's so interesting how relevant both those conversations are. Because uh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. like watching this, I'm like, this is Leo, and even today, seeing the whole yep. article, is like Leo's closest friend saying he won't settle down with Jihadi is just like wow. 25 years old just can't do it um, i saw i saw somebody on in, in, in a film critic influencer on tiktok said like well i just turned 26 today which means i'm too old for leo but yeah. you know yeah <laughs> and then that nazi scene oh, it feels like yeah we don't like nazis in 1992 and then in 2023 has a whole other kind of loaded experience because Mm -hmm. there are a bunch of those people who yelled at him in that room and it's just like Mm -hmm. this is so uncomfortable but that's why it works um yep the one thing i was going to say about his wives too which i think the most poignant thing that the film did was when 
because like Diane, Diane Lane is the most resourceful and layered of his wives. And when she says, is this how you lost your other (laughs) wives? And his response is, I don't know. I'm not sure. Just like that captures. You have to ask how low his wives were on his Mm -hmm. priorities Mm -hmm. in the grand scheme of who he was, because when it really came down to it, he was an entertainer. He was a creator. That's who Mm -hmm. he was. Mm -hmm. And that shined through so much in that scene. That's probably Mm -hmm. one of my favorite scenes in the movie. This, my, my favorite moment in the movie, which I thought gave a very similar vibe was uh, where he's like leaving the theater and a bunch of people come up to him in autographs. And he said, I wish they wanted my money instead. Yeah. Um, well, there were the uh, strike. Uh, there were the, no, no strike. There were the uh, actors in you know uh, and people influenced by the Great Depression because yeah. they were out of jobs and right. they, he felt so bad because he was making you know millions in that time and he was like taking their money like yeah yeah yeah. No, I I thought I thought to me that was my favorite moment in the movie and it's the thing like moment. you know the movie is trying to you know show him as a person with his flaws which again. You know, there were a lot of flaws and by today's standards, he would have been canceled 10 times over. However, you know, if you look at a person as a person, not just, you know, as his actions and but actually, you know, take it, you know, yes, we are no, nobody is 100% good. Nobody's 100% bad. You know, we are all some sort of shade of gray. And he was skewing to a certain sides in some areas, yes, but in different sides to, you know, in other areas. And it's a thing. If you want to hate chaplain for you know uh, dating and marrying 15 year olds i guess fair enough you know i'm not gonna you know not gonna say nothing about that but just you know there's so much to him than that and that's why i i don't think there's you know that was the focal point of the movie because the movie acknowledges it it'll be it'll be cowardly not to but it moves along because that's not the main focus I uh, I have a couple notes that I wanted to mention that I think we've already covered on a good amount of these. Um, so I just kind of want to double double back. Um, Luke, you mentioned the problem with Char with uh, Char- Charlie's like with Robert Downey Jr.'s like accent. You weren't mm-hmm. quite convinced of it, and you know you live in the UK, so like mm-hmm. I'm uh, I'm I'm certainly more willing to accept your criticism of it. I also think it's like early '90s. People weren't like yeah yeah as picky about it you know not Dick uh, Van Dyke. yeah right he wasn't um, bad it just wasn't, it wasn't my, as my issue was i felt like it, it just didn't feel it didn't sound right it mm-hmm. felt like they went back and 80 yarded terribly i felt like a lot of movies had a problem with the 80 uh, i just didn't uh, see my issue was i didn't i don't i didn't think i didn't i don't know if it's just my blu-ray because I watched it from a Blu-ray I purchased, and it's the first time Blu-ray did not have English subtitles, only English language, like you know the audio. But hmm. no, there was like French, Dutch, and Chinese subtitles, and no English. And I was like, "What?" Interesting. Yeah. So I will. So I thought maybe you know, and some scenes definitely sounded almost too studio e, like too like you know. Oh, this was definitely in a booth. There, there was scenes that I thought. They weren't convinced about Robert Downey Jr.'s accent, so they hired somebody who sounds similar to Robert Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. with an English accent. Um, okay. So I don't, it, it felt off-putting to me. I, um, I feel like my thought on it... So if you watch this movie and nobody tells you when this was made, mm-hmm. are you going to guess this was 1992? Because I'm not. I'm guessing like, earlier. Yeah, yeah. I think this... Not only does this have a very traditional... 
biopic structure. Mm-hmm. It also feels very old school yes. made. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's Richard Attenborough. And this mm-hmm. is like Richard Attenborough from when he was in Jurassic Park. Yeah. So like he's a little old man mm-hmm. and it feels like his mm-hmm. style. And like this felt like it probably was could have been made in the 70s or 80s. 100%. And I think from like a technical standpoint, you could definitely tell that. And I don't know if it has to do with how the sound is done and everything, but it just has that feel of not feeling like a modern movie despite being a 90s movie. I will say, though, I will say I hear you and I 100% agree with you. But a movie about Charlie Chaplin, mm-hmm. I don't think you can approach it with a modern 90s or even 80s aesthetic. Uh, not even aesthetic, just like a, a filmmaking. It was definitely made in a old school, Wikipedia article, standard, you know, cradle to the grave biopic, 100%. If somebody was making... A Charlie Chaplin biopic today, again, it would be in four by three black and white on a handheld digital camera or handheld camera. Like no, <laughs> if it's no, if, if they were making it, and I think that this is kind of addressing all of our issues, what we're having with this movie, it wouldn't be a movie. It would be a, a limited series about yeah. six or to eight episodes to actually delve deep into the man, all his wives, all the movie stuff. And all, you know, uh, what happened after. I think, you know, again, we are all, you know, it sounds like we are all on board with the four hour cut and we would like to see it. Sure. I can especially, you know, release it on HBO in four hour long chunks. Yeah. And again, I can imagine, you know, and back in 90s, that wasn't the case. So this was the next best thing. Now, if we got did something similar. Yeah. But now it's just, it would, I don't think it would be. A movie. I think it would just go, you know, straight. No, to- you're right. It would be. It would be straight to Netflix or mm-hmm. something. Um, yeah. Or I mean, or I think what is more likely is they would do a documentary. You know, um, and might even be more similar to like the Peter Jackson Beatles documentary, oh, yeah. where it's like, you know three two and a half hour long whatever but um and shane i think you did a review for like they, there was a documentary like two years ago like called the yeah, real life of Charlie really Chaplin or something like that i thought yeah. it was a really well made documentary um and that's that's the thing we would get that but we'd also get the biopic because true true they always true. come they come in twos yes it's like um, go- or threes or fours depending on how many different streaming services want to also make their own documentary because mm-hmm. this was a showtime documentary if i'm not mistaken and like it was a really I think good right. quality like i'll take hbo documentaries i'll take a showtime documentary they're they're premium cable they're yeah, yeah attica is awesome you know belushi was great yeah so, um the, the going back to the, like the notes the way now i wrote this note i think like before the movie started having pacing issues for me but i wrote that i, I really like the way the movie's framed shane i know you said that the anthony hopkins character kind of bogged it down a little bit but i guess my thought was like when i wrote that down my note my thought was um if you're going to make a movie about somebody's whole life this is a great way for you to just kind of like yada yada past things if it's if it's him reviewing his biography with chaplin if it's kind of framed from that you you're able to just like, okay, cool. So then five years later, it ends, you know, your marriage ends, what happened there? And you can like, you can kind of naturally like time jump and skip past things. And you can be, you can, it, it's a good editing tool. I mean, mm-hmm. it can feel a little choppy, but when you need to make a, a four hour movie, two and a half hours, like it's, it was better than just 
having it be choppy and not have any sort of like external narrative structure to it. Well, um, I said they had to rely on it a lot. Mm-hmm. So like, I felt like they had to lean on it to try to maneuver around. Then honestly, a I couple wonder... of times it was pretty fun with it. Like I got a kick out of Anthony Hopkins calling him out on only writing five lines about his one wife yep. and then having to flesh it out. That it was a lot more complicated than that. Or just, I think that was one of the moments where you just realize like, he's just a bad husband. Mm-hmm. I wonder. Uh, I wonder how much of the force nature you're talking about is due to the editing, like needing to cut it down. Like if if they if they almost relied on it as a crutch too much. Well, I I could imagine like they had to film, like they could have filmed a lot of that afterwards, and having to maneuver around with it, knowing that they couldn't release four hours cut of the film. I would- I would be shocked if that wasn't the last thing filmed. And yeah, I mean, I, again, even I wouldn't be shocked if it was revealed that they cut the movie and then realized that they needed a narrative structure. And so they wrote in that part and filmed it all like so, like that wouldn't shock me at all. I want to know how much Anthony Hopkins got paid for this movie. Four hundred billion dollars. Um, <laughs> Million dollars for four days. Well, it wasn't Anthony Hopkins, you know, as we know him now. It was just before we knew him as, you know, Hannibal Lecter. Well, so it was eight. after Hannibal Lecter came out. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. What am I talking about? It was just before Silence of the Lambs. Well, well yeah, before no. Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, question is, which movie does he have more screen time in? Mm-hmm. The father. He won Best um, Actor for 16 <laughs> minutes. Yep. So... Uh, so the, one of the other notes that I made is, um, I said the movie's kind of tonally all over the place. I think that's a product of the editing, um, kind of needing, and and again, I kind of touched on that in the great dictator section that really just kind of felt, felt choppy to me. And one other note, uh, just, we were talking about the sexuality of, uh, of this movie. Um, I guess like forewarning, if you're like, think about watching this movie, there's a lot of nudity in this PG 13 movie. Um, there was like three. Did you not have that in your cut? No, I do, but like I'm okay. just, you know, I'm just like, is this a law? Like, there was three separate scenes, and the first scene has, I would say, six or seven women naked. Yeah. Well, well uh, uh, let's just reframe this and also realize that Luke is from Europe, where like right, no, violence and, and, like, is that was awful definitely a and, and I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not trying yes. to condemn that or say anything, but I'm just saying like. Before you show this to your kids, if that's something you care about your kids seeing, mm-hmm. you know, you raise your kids however you want, yes. as long as, you know, it's not insane. Uh, but it, 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 was, it was odd. It was, it was odd to me. It's almost like when you're watching Titanic, you're like, she's completely naked. Anyway. Um, to be honest, so. I didn't even really notice that much after watching the movie. I'm just like... At- at 31 years old, having watched so many movies, I'm pretty desensitized to certain things. I'm just like, me too. Oh, look, but it was arrests. It was more so something that, like, if you, if if it would have ended and you would have asked me what's this film rated, I would have said R because of the nude scenes. And it's not. It's P. So I, it's mostly it I mostly systems. made that note. I mostly made that note note just as a heads or, up. If it if it's a trigger warning for you <laughs> for some you know for some people like that can't handle boobs you know or again like yes. i don't i don't know that this is a film that you really want to show your kids i mean not or, that none of your kids like you're a seven-year-old like daddy i want to watch chaplin right yeah, I, was gonna like, say, 
you know, they're not they're not talking about the biopic. They're talking about the kid, you know. Uh, but so anyway, I just I, it was mostly like a that kind of surprised me, mm-hmm. but uh, like not really because I think you know the MPA is really consistent in their rules, and I think you know none of it's none of it's terribly like like the first. I get I get what you mean. The first scene, like the, because the first the, the scene you're referring scene. to like six or seven topless women. Yeah, it's like a in the first 10, 15 minutes. So I kind of understand it was like, oh, I was surprised. I was like, oh, okay. And then, well, and then I... later there's the Mili Jovovich scene, which now just makes me feel icky knowing that she was underage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there later there was like the Diane Lane scene. And yes. you're like, oh, okay. Like, and it's all relatively brief. It's all yes. like... That's why I forgot about it because it was just brief. There was no actual like sex in it. There was just, you know... But it was some... just by the time we got to the third scene, I was like, wow, like every woman gets naked in this movie. Anyway, wow. Um... <laughs> Yeah, people 16. used to, people used to shoot nudity in a movie. So, wow. Yeah. Um, and then the, the I I want to I want to make one more note. Um, the moment look I had heard that this was this is kind of like Downey's like big claim to fame mm-hmm. bef- like pre you know um, what do we want Coke era of his life like rehab rough era. Um, yep. His yeah, yeah rehab I think is the best way to say yeah, it. Yeah. 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 Um, and so like this like. And so it was one of those, I knew there was a lot of clout to it. And I knew because I've seen Downey in, in recent history, no, not just uh, um, Avengers movies, but, you know, he's really great in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and some other mm-hmm. movies. You know, um, I didn't see Doolittle, so I'm, I still consider him a good actor. Um, <laughs> but uh, I so I knew this was kind of his like claim to fame for why people were like, oh, it's such a shame. Because like before Kiss Kiss, like when, when he did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Iron Man, it was like, a oh, He's making a comeback, and, and I was like, "Come back from what?" And yep. then you know, found out because I was thirteen at the time, you know, and uh, when Iron Man came out, and it, and it was like, "Oh, okay, cool." But it's like, "Oh, this is why people were like, oh, it's kind of like you could see he has such potential.' You know, he's going to be a be- mm-hmm. he's going to be an Oscar winner, um, in maybe str- for Oppenheimer. Wait, I don't know. In a strange way, it's kind of meta if you think about it, because both, uh, you know, Robert Downey Jr. People forget uh, how much crap he's done in his rough era so and they are both playing you know and he's playing this character who also has a like you know not great past by enemy but they are both more than that they are both more you know they've made mistakes but i would argue they are not uh, okay let's not get to this debate but i would just argue yeah you, you know you can you know you can just uh, grip on he did this one thing in the past or these two things in the past. Therefore, he will always be a terrible person just because he did this thing 20 years ago. Or, again, Robert Downey Jr. then makes a comeback and now he's one of the most beloved actors also in Oppenheimer. I uh, I, I mostly, like, I bring that up that I knew this film had a lot of clock going for, mm-hmm. for it, for his performance, but it really, really sold me mm-hmm. the scene where he uh, becomes the tramp because... It's kind of got that fun like flashback with you know mm-hmm. with Anthony Hopkins saying the way you worded this and he's like well the actual story wasn't fun it's it shows like a hyper reel of him you know doing around the dressing room versus you know the hat and cane calling mm-hmm. out to him and whatnot but like you see him eventually in in the actual way that it is you see him put on 
the hat and the cane. He's about to step out and then he goes back and he goes for the mustache. Mm -hmm. But then like, as he's walking towards set, like you can see like his feet start to get a little Mm -hmm. bit like bow legged, you know, he's walking a little bit more funny. He starts twirling the cane. He starts like waddling like a penguin, like (laughs) that particular scene. Like it just made me feel like, like, okay, he's no longer Robert Downey Jr. That's Charlie Chaplin. Um, And I thought that was, that that scene was really special and that was like oh yeah no he's he's great at this um what sold me was the scene prior to that when he had to convince dan Aykroyd that he is the guy who you know he hired uh-huh. he's like no i'm expecting this older guy who knows how to play drunk brilliantly you, you know i'm not gonna pay this you know youngling like yourself you know get out of here and then he just puts on this performance for you know in about like one or two minutes yeah. and to me i was like wow that's just you know Robert Downey Jr. Again, the accent is not a minor, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a minor thing. So I'm not gonna, you know, but he was great. And in a in a just world, he probably would have won the Oscar. But yeah, yeah speaking yeah, I of mean, accent, oh, sorry. I, I would I would need to look at the the 92 Oscars. But uh, sure, I'm I'm going with probably Clint Eastwood from Unforgiven. But I think most of the nominees besides Al Pacino probably should have <laughs> won that Oscar. <laughs> I would have been happy for Robert Downey Jr. to win for yeah. this. Yeah. It's um it it he's an Academy Award nominated lead actor from this mm-hmm. movie and best uh, supporting actor for Tropic Thunder. Mm-hmm. And that's sure. a very interesting career. That is. So, that's man that the <laughs> the range there should be a really fun um there should be a really fun like B plot that we do sometime that's like define an actor's career in the worst possible ways and you go well Robert Downey Jr.'s Oscars are Chaplin <laughs> and Tropic I think, Thunder I, I'm looking at it now we have Pacino winning for Scent of a Woman which I haven't seen Downey Jr.'s Chaplin here yeah worth it um Clint Eastwood for Unforgiven I'm on record I don't like that movie but I don't like westerns um Stephen Ray for the crying game. And I haven't seen it, but like, I got to think that Denzel Washington and Malcolm X would also be oh. in the conversation. Like you're well, saying like in a just world, Chaplin walks away with this. And I'm look, I, I haven't seen sensible woman or Malcolm X, but like it, in Shane, you're even saying Clint, Clint Eastwood forgiven. It almost feels like Malcolm X is the bigger trip. I forgot about Denzel and I haven't seen it, but I know it's, it's Denzel. Yeah, no. Okay. I'm changing it's my mind. Denzel in a spikely directed. I'm, I'm just saying literally about. anybody. <laughs> yeah. Probably would have been more deserving than specifically Al Pacino for scent of a woman, but alas, and that's, that's why you award Oscars when they, you know, when they should be awarded, not, you know, play games. And then you need to reward them back because Al Pacino has been nominated for seven or eight times and still hasn't won it. Or, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, let's just say at least he didn't win for best supporting actor for Jack and Jill. <laughs> On to modern times. My, let me, I, 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 um, I really like where the movie ends, mm-hmm. um, like with his celebration um at the academy awards for his lifetime achievement award i think that's a good like place to end the movie mm-hmm. and then it sh- and then it says a bunch of other things and on and by the way too if you're watching this movie like have your phone ready and be ready to pause because when it starts saying all these title cards of what these people are doing like you're like hold on this person debacle with director and drug what i gotta find out more and so you like mm-hmm. google this person it was just prepare for that it was fun but i think like what a what a really like to me that felt so special at the end especially like i had read in imdb trivia that he received a 12 minute standing ovation when he got his oscar so his lifetime achievement oscar so it's it's also knowing you know it cuts off the applause pretty quick but Mm -hmm. like 
I wish they would have taken actual audio. I don't know if they actually have any. They probably might have. But I would love for them to take actual audio of that and have it go over the credits. The full 12 minute oh. ovation. Um, That's the, anyway. the ending was what convinced me to rate it slightly higher to 4.5 on Leatherbox, to be honest. The ending just hit me the right way. I mean, again, it's it's a relatively safe choice, kind of mm-hmm. like Shane was. Saying, it's 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 the act. It's the biopic ending, but and it all works. That, but it's like, yeah, you know, it 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 just works. Yeah. Uh, before right. we move on, before we move on, I just need to m- mention the accent. I I love me some Moira Kelly, but her English accent in the first part of the movie uh, just people give a lot of shit to Keanu in the same year, nineteen ninety two, for Dracula. No, like she just entered the conversation like no even in her brief time i was like what no what was she doing uh oh, 1992 was not a great year for accents well um i will be discussing keanu's accent in two weeks uh <laughs> and screaming <laughs> anthony hopkins yes dracula is a great movie by the way i will be the judge of that okay in two weeks really? um, <laughs> Uh, modern dimes, um, Shane. This was like your second overall pick. I gotta know why was this one uh, that stood out to you? And um, yeah, it deserved a rewatch. I hadn't watched it in a while, and I'd been watching some other Chaplin films recently, and this feels very timely. Mm-hmm. And it sure is. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Lucas, uh, have you seen it? Amazon? I think so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Luke, you said you'd seen this before. This is my first time seeing this. Um, this is one of those, like, I, I as soon as I saw the kid, I just decided that I wanted to buy the rest of Chaplin's Criterions that I saw. Because I think I only had the kid. Maybe also had the Great Dictator. But at that point, after I actually saw the kid, I'm like, oh, this is great. Then I bought City Lights and Circus and Modern Times and maybe one other. I'm trying to think if there's one other. But either way, I, I bought those all the next Criterion sale. And um, so that's how I watched um, this one, but, um, okay. Shane, Luke, and then me like it, love it, hate it, dislike it, or think it's just okay. Uh, Shane. Loved you, it. Yeah. Um, is, could you put somewhere on the list of, uh, uh, where, where ish this would follow in terms of your like Chaplin films rankings? This would probably be second to the great dictator. And, but like, I do really love this film. I think The Great Dictator does some things that unfortunately are still really relevant today mm-hmm. in 2023. Um, <laughs> but like this, I think it's so fascinating how much of a genius he was and the fact that he found things to look at that are so relevant still. Like The Immigrant. Mm -hmm. would think we'd have even worse problems with immigration in 2023 and people's perception of immigrants here it's like this is the industrial revolution things were bad for human Mm -hmm. beings versus machines and Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. working spaces yet that whole entire sequence felt right out of amazon like i thought he walked into the bathroom at amazon and i'm just imagining (laughs) jeff bezos popping up on a giant screen like get back to work Yep. <laughs> uh, Luke, like I love, hated this. Like I think it's just okay. Uh, low side, love it. First time I just liked it because I didn't understand everything. Now seeing how topical and how timely this movie is, yeah, very low side of love it or low side of love it. Um, if you had to rank it in your, I would say same your... as Shane. 
I, I really, really, really like Great Dictator. Just absolutely amazing movie. Even back when I saw it 15 probably years ago, kind of in the same vein, I still love that movie because I was like, damn, in that time to do what he did. Wow. Um, I'm going to go loved it as well. Uh, this is my new favorite Chaplin film. Um, I, I think, again, I've, I've seen Modern Times uh, the kid and great dictator. I think it's going Some in great that ones. order, mm-hmm. but I really like all three of them. I think I like maybe need to watch great dictator again. And like, I, I think also when I sat down to watch, I was completely ex- like expecting, um, I was expecting a, a different movie. I thought it was a parody, like supposed mm-hmm. to be a parody of Hitler, not some guy that kind of looks like Hitler and eventually gets to make a speech as the fear of the, you know, anyway. Yep. Um, no, but I remember really, 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 really liking that movie. Um, and the kid is just like fun and whimsical. And mm-hmm. I would love to watch that one again. It's, it's also just brisk. It's tight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think this is my new favorite Chaplin film. Um, and for good reason. I mean, so one of the things, so, so, and maybe it was partly just watching Chaplin first, but like maybe like just getting to experience more of like him and his life and the process of making films and, you know, knowing all the stuff that was going on behind the scenes, you know, like uh, just, just maybe made me appreciate the film more, but I just in general think it was the most captivating and it, it, it's, it kind of seems like it takes place in these small vignettes where almost you have three different movies, but they kind of work seamlessly. Like, cause you have him in the factory at the mm-hmm. beginning and then you have, um, the, like the jail stuff and then on the run, and then you have him trying to start a new, but they all like kind of flow together seamlessly. Um, it just, it just works. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really funny. And I, D- Robert Downey Jr. Was, uh, said he watched every Charlie Chaplin film, um, leading up to Chaplin and some, and, and in the interviews, you know, they asked him, how did that make you feel? And he said, it scared me. And after I saw this one, I got it. Like <laughs> I understood, um, partly because of what we're talking about, you know, where it's like, you could imagine, Hey, you know, this being Amazon, people are wheeling in this contraption to, to try to feed you your lunch quicker so you can work more. So you can don't get the hour for lunch. You get, yep. you know, the, a five minute sit in this chair and have everything being, fed to you and then um yeah and not only that but he he's like in in the line and he's you know pulling the wrenches and every time he steps off the line like he's still got that arm movement going on just because he's doing the same thing all day every day like um it just felt so relevant like we've already said and you know you keep on you moving forward it's all it was also really kind of uncanny watching them be on strike as we're you know seeing mm-hmm. the wga strike stuff go on like maybe that was um something else that i saw there i thought there was also again again context for this movie um and and seeing Chaplin first because he's talking about the tramp does not work with sound mm-hmm. and so we mm-hmm. got to see we don't actually get to see him like working on this movie um we see a clip of it in the oscars reel at the end but like we don't really like he's works on great dictator and then um you know and then he's pretty much exiled like he works uh, on modern times as well was that the one that he was like slaving the music. over that he lost Paulette Goddard to? Yeah. Oh shoot. Yeah, there was the music because yeah. that's what that's what struck. So I didn't remember that he so, music. He composed well, the music. Well, here's here's the because I hadn't seen Modern Times, I didn't know that was Modern Times. Ah, that's so, fair point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, oh, that's another chapel. Anyway, but but he makes the point. Um, he makes the point that the tramp doesn't work with sound. Yeah. With sound kills the tramp. 
Uh, and I think it's a total, it's a totally right assessment. You know, Chaplin could have had a long successful career with talkies, but not as the tramp, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, and, uh, in, unless something completely evolved, but I think you just move on anyway. I think this movie did a really excellent balance of, 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 of the way it used sound. Um, like the only times we ever hear sound are when it's coming from mechanical objects. Like when it's coming from, mm-hmm. we don't ever hear even his coworkers saying, it's not just the tramp is silent. We don't hear anything unless it comes from like the radio in the police station or, you know, Jeff Bezos telling us to get back to work or, um, or whatnot. I, I just thought it was like, it was so clever and so interesting and it, it just felt like that step up, you know, where like, I, I think I felt this way, the way that, I mean, like you guys are t- like, like talk about the great dictator where it's like, it's, uh, it's just kind of that next level mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, the physical comedy is really clever and at an all time high, you know? And, and I think that's, you know, this is later in his career. So you have to do more other than just falling over on a box. It still works, but you need to have him go find a wedge at a shipyard and, you know, completely lose a half built ship because yep. of it, you know, uh, or you have to have him like jump into the machine because he's falling behind in his work. And then you see him go through the gears and then you see him reversed back through the gears. Like, you know, it's like, it just feels like everything was elevated and, uh, it just worked really well for me. I thought it was really clever. So again, I think I like this movie a lot more because the context of seeing Chaplin made me like appreciate the era that this was made in as opposed to just, Oh, it was another Chaplin film. It's like, well, this is a Chaplin film while the talkies are thriving. Like, mm-hmm. so anyway, I think plus wouldn't, wouldn't this have all been going around around the time of the trial of the underage girl and the pregnancy that he was, I think it came later. Because he was quite old at the trial, I don't know the date, but it seemed to me like there was like a like a late forties, early fifties, maybe. And this is thirty six. Anyway, um, I'll 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 figure it out. But either way, just again, kind of context of what's going on just made mm-hmm. me made me really appreciate this one. Mm-hmm. I do think this probably has some of his best physical comedy that he has mm-hmm. in any of his films. Like, the whole entire sequences throughout the factory are absolutely amazing. And, like, Aaron, what you pointed on with him continuing to do the motions of the cranking and the wrenching is hilarious. And, like, every time he sees somebody with some kind of buttons or yep. something that looks vaguely like yep. Yep. chasing people around, including that lady like, outside, uh-huh. um, yep. that, was a, that was a little risque for uh-huh. 1936. Um Cause like I would put so many of these up there with like him dancing with the globe in great dictator. Like there's like really iconic, like if somebody asks you to think about a frame of a Chaplin film, one of them is probably going to be him stuck in the gears mm-hmm. because that's just yes. so hilarious. Literally gets eaten by the machine. Yes. And one of the things that I really liked about this and didn't expect was I really enjoyed the romance. And I think his chemistry with, Paulette Goddard is fantastic, which I find is really interesting that Diane Lane really captured Mm -hmm. that in Chaplin. Um, And she was stunning. Yep. And the two of them play so well together, even like just walking off on that road. It's just like, yep, Mm -hmm. I hope they stick it out. Mm -hmm. I loved I loved the aspect of how even thematically, you know, just we start on a there's a bunch of sheep. And suddenly those sheep transfer to people and those are also running someplace, you know, and it's just like, oh, you know, we are just all animals following this 
circle, you know, the cycle or this like regime, and then the regime fails you, and then you know it makes you unemployed. Go, you go to prison. You go, come back. You go back, you know, and then you want to get, you know, kind of escape it, but you cannot. And it's just you get you're stuck in this machine in this cycle. But it ends hopefully. It ends kind of on a okay, maybe next time we will manage to work, you know, to make it work within this regime we kind of selected. Um, I, I just did some quick timeline research. So, yeah, you're right. It was mid-40s where there was the controversy with the, mm-hmm. um, uh, what's her name, Joan Barry, um, and the underage yeah. pregnancy, whatnot, all that good stuff. Um, not all that good stuff, all that stuff. Uh, but, but there was all, you know, Again, seeing the movie, knowing about the, you know, Edgar Hoover going after him and Mm -hmm. Hollywood kind of being after anybody that um, they suspect of communist activities. And, um, you know, this would have this would have also been near the end, but still very much in the Great Depression Mm -hmm. period. So, like, putting that into context and and again, that scene of him saying, I wish he'd want my money. Like, Mm -hmm. so. So, yeah, you're you're right on timeline. It wasn't while that but there was still a lot else going on in the world and his life at the time. And again, like World War One is over. World War Two is on the horizon. And he faced a lot of controversy because there was the like, you know, why aren't you going? And he's like, my name is there. I'm just waiting for them to call me, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um I also just thought the score was really incredible. That's that's my only other thing that I wrote down. Uh, mm-hmm. There's plenty to love. It's it's easy to see the chemistry between the two leads as well. I mean, obviously they get married um, the year this movie comes out. Um, but it's I I thought the score was really great. But it also like had this weird thing of sounding familiar, and it just made me like I he- I heard notes of La La Land in there, and I heard notes of um, uh, the the main Harry Potter theme in some of the songs. And I heard notes from like Saving Private Ryan, and it just it just made me feel like this is this is a goaded score. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's remarkable. It's it's on how uh, um, uh, it just being one of the best. It's it's the first Chaplin film that I've seen that at the end I want to just listen to. You know, I don't I I, re- I remember liking the score for the other two films that I've seen, but like this was the first one I was like I I want to listen to that more. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, he's yeah, I, uh, so. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the only reason I remember he was composing the movie in Chaplin for this because I watched Modern Times first, and the first thing that caught my eye was he also composed the music because I remember he wrote it, he directed it, he stars in it. I remember that, but I was like, oh, I didn't remember him composing it. And then there's a scene how he keeps on going and playing and playing and playing. Even the the pianist is just like, oh, can we not just you know try tomorrow? And the wife, you know, and as you mentioned, you know, uh, says to him, "This is why the others left you." And he says, "You don't, I don't know. You have to ask them." Yeah. And it's that was for that for this movie because yeah, he apparently spent like a few months just composing just the music. It's insane how he was kind of almost uh, when people mention directors and per- being perfectionists, they always mention Hitchcock. But I feel like Chaplin belongs to this debate as well. From just a sure. little, I know know of him, and just the you know, if the biopic is fifty percent accurate, it you know he must have been he must have been just like hell of a just you know perfectionist. I want to see Charlie Chaplin's Babylon. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. <laughs> anyway, uh, I don't have any other notes. I just I really really loved it. Mm-hmm. I I. 
it, it was it hit me in just the right way. I thought it all flowed well. I thought um, I thought every little vignette felt both unique and like it flowed really well into the other. I mean, it had me constantly laughing. I mean, even like I think the jail part is the most forgettable, but the scene where like the guy hides the cocaine in the salt shaker and then oh. he's just shaking salt everywhere, like um, you know, just just all just really worked for me. It was it was you know, like like Shane mentioned, you know, going through the it's peak physical comedy. It's it's so iconic. It it really feels like this is the this is the last time he pulls out the tramp character, and it really feels like a perfect like everything he wanted to do. You know, like do it. Um, because you may not get to make another one of these movies because they don't have much talking in them, you know? So, um, yeah, just, uh, everything about it just worked really, really, really well for me. Yeah. I don't have any other notes. Do you guys have any? I would just nope. say, I, I just said, uh, the only thing that slightly didn't work and that's why I'm not loved it is just the last, like the ball part and the, the stuff with the duck and the singing. I just thought it slowed the movie down just a tiny bit, and that didn't gel with me for whatever reason. But everything else was—it was like the least cohesive of the acts. But I think it worked for me. I—I I feel like had you lost it on those like ten, fifteen minutes, it would have been perfect, and it would have been on a great dictator, like you know, basically neck to neck. But this is you know just just that specific part. There was something about it that I almost felt like didn't fit in the movie. So I just felt like, okay, you know, but it's still a great movie. Like, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. My local indie is showing this movie for free in a park. Um, uh -oh. They built a screen on the side of a ramp, a uh, side of a parking ramp, like a three-story parking I ramp. Would go. And, uh, I would go. I think I'm going to go. I would. Do it. Yes. Yeah. They're also showing the original Top Gun soon. And oh, nice. If there's ever going to be a time I watch that movie again, why not on a big screen? True. Although I'm going to just be mad that they're not showing Maverick. Um, <laughs> there you go. Uh, anyway, um, let's move on then. We got the B plot then to do. So, uh, we are doing a best ever challenge, best ever movies, um, that are black and white in their original release. So there you, it could be a movie that came out this year, as long as it is in black and white. Um, we'll do it. So we'll go number five to number one. I'm going to kick us off. Um, let's go in, uh, in the order of, uh, me, Shane, then Luke. We'll go number five to number one. We'll do Trump rules. If you have it higher. Trumpet, we'll talk about it whenever whoever has the highest. At the end, we'll do honorable mentions. And honorable mentions are simply saying um, the title of the movie so to save us some time. So um, at number five, I feel bad for even saying this. I have Schindler's List. Um, cool. Not all it, just, it just like it feels really important. It's a remarkable mm -hmm. movie. Um, and I actually kicked off a movie because the one of the movies I had on there was it was just because it was made in the black and white era. That's the only reason why it was black and white versus Schindler's List is a deliberate choice. I think it's a choice that works really well. It's an excellent movie. It's probably going to be the most important movie we talk about all day. Um, oh. But you knew that. Um, Shane, what's your number five? My number five is Night of the Hunter from Charles Lawton starring Robert Mitchum. It is a very dark, like American Gothic kind of horror thriller. And... Robert Mitchum is one of the most charismatic and unnerving villains you're going to find in a movie. And he's the one who originated the love and hate tattooed on his knuckles that winds up being in Do the Right Thing. It, it's honestly worth it just for his performance, but it is a crisp, creepy, and unnerving like 90-minute thriller. 
Interesting. I need to rewatch it. I watched it once and didn't like it for whatever reason, so I need to give it another shot. All right. You've you could convinced me. <laughs> uh, Luke, what's your number five? My number five is She's Gotta Have It by Spike Lee. This is his debut. Not only this is his debut, but he makes it as raw as possible, black and white, about women who just wants to have some fun and these three dudes who are not to various degrees of, of success not having it or having it it's brilliant it's raw it's it's spikely like him announcing hey i'm here and you know you better remember my name because i'm gonna do some i'm gonna do some stuff and he nailed it nice uh my number four i have it's a wonderful life um i think it says enough about the movie that there are fully restored, beautiful color transfers of this movie. And if you put on the color, you're just wrong. <laughs> like you put on the black and white of this movie every time you watch it. Like that's, that should say enough. It's a classic. I, I think it's one of those that it is way too long. And it's one of those you think about it and you only think about like the last 20 or 30 minutes and you're like, Oh, it's perfect. It's far from perfect, but um, it is a goaded film. So um, yeah, Shane, my number four is Sunset Boulevard. My honorable mention. mention for me. There you go. I actually took my mom to go see this on Mother's Day in theaters for Fathom event. And she's like, wait, this is the actual one? I'm like, yeah, mom. She thought I was, they like remade it or something. Um, Gloria Swanson is towering and mm-hmm. larger than life in this film. I love William Holden. And this is like one of the few times where you know what? That's my body's floating there in the pool. You wonder how I got here? Actually works. <laughs> and it drinks yep. people. And it's just such a fascinating look at the fall of Hollywood and like old Hollywood and the silent era. It's such a compelling character story and really messed up all at the same time. Toxic relationships, 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Luke? So my number four is a movie nobody's ever heard of unless un, unless you're Czech. But it's worth mentioning just because of its relevance. It's the movie called The Cremator from 1969. Uh, I'm not going to name any actors or directors because they would mean nothing to you. But what I'll say is this. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's worth mentioning because we kind of are dancing around Nazis today with Chapa and Arifin. And the movie, this is about a guy who runs this cremation center. And during, I believe, during World War II or just before it, he's slowly convinced by Nazis to get on their side. And that creeps in into him possibly killing off his family. I'm not going to spoil anything else, but I'll say it's shot in this fish islands, which in 1969 was a very unique choice. So it gives it gives this black and white, almost horror movie, very unique, creepy feel, feeling. And it's just very chilling and i hope i hope criterion would pick it up and just restore it and give it uh, english subtitles so people could you know feel the terror and again how easy is it to kind of convert one to the bad side all right scared me mm-hmm. I'm, I'm scared to say anything <laughs> uh it's based on a book so that's also that my number three is anatomy of a murder nice. um which is one of the best court movies I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, just blew me away. Jimmy Stewart, again, um, giving an excellent performance. And uh, um, yeah, it's it's just so good. Um, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Because it's 
it's just one of the best court movies there is. And my number three is Young Frankenstein. Nice. Hopefully you'll mm. appreciate that joke. Um, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's so perfect that Mel Brooks shot this in black and white just to really like hammer home the homage to the universal horror films that it's parodying and just this love letter. And also, I really wonder what Peter Boyle would have looked like on screen <laughs> in color. Um, but just Gene Wilder is absolutely amazing in this. Actually, let me scratch that. Literally everybody in this movie is absolutely amazing. From Marty mm-hmm. Feldman to Peter Boyle to Madeline Kahn to Terry Garr to Ke- um, was it Kenneth Mars, who's the one doing the whole uh, Doctor Strange love thing with his hand he can't control. Um, it's just so funny, but it's such a great sci-fi movie, too. Mm-hmm. And that's this is peak Mel Brooks. I love Mel Brooks. And if you haven't seen it, you should watch it and all of Mel Brooks movies because yeah. that man is a national treasure and he's still kicking it. Good uh-huh. for him somehow. Yeah. Yep. What do you got, Luke? My number three would be Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans from 1927. It's the... There have been... Uh, romantic movies done before i guarantee it but this one just hit me even when i watched it about 10 12 years ago and it just hits hits you in the like the it's a romantic movie done to the like rawest way possible and i always appreciate movies who know you know that know what they are and how they can sell you the emotion and you feel for those two people and it just stayed with me for almost 10 years now and it's a beautiful movie it's a great movie and you will not feel it's from 19... If it if they talked, you wouldn't feel it's from 1927. Very nice. Head of its time. Mm-hmm. My top two movies are um, only... I think... Yeah, I think only because it was still industry standard for black and white. Like, there's not necessarily a reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that was the same for Anatomy of a Murder. Um, so, anyway. Um, my number two is Arsenic and Old Lace. Nice. It's just a movie that... I've just continued to love more and more and more and more and more. And it's oddly become a feel good movie for me. Like if I'm having a bad day, I'll put it on and it'll change my mood, which is weird because it's one of the darkest movies I've ever seen. Um, But I just love it. Cary Grant is terrific. And um, just you can listen to our episode on from like a while ago, but uh, it is just stayed as one of my favorite movies that I've watched for this podcast. Mm -hmm. It made me go watch that. Honestly, it was a lot of fun. It's uh, so good. <laughs> it is so good. I think I bought the Criterion already, too. Um, I did. I, I for sure. I think it was like it came out in the month that they were having a 50% off sale. So I was yep. like, yup. <laughs> it's like in the cart. Thank you. you need to yep. buy. Um, my number two is The Hustler. Uh, and hmm. I'm a huge fan of this film. I'm also a huge fan of The Color of Money, which I think is an underappreciated Scorsese film, which is a sequel. Yes. Uh, Paul Newman is so fantastic in this. Like, this is a quote-unquote sports movie about Mm -hmm. a pool grifter, but, like, it goes so much deeper than that in terms of just this man and this woman who connect and neither of them are very good for each other. And it ends in pretty not great ways, but one of the most amazing, intense, like, sports sequences in a film is... Uh, Fast Eddie Paul Newman going toe-to-toe with Minnesota Fats, Jackie Gleason, 
absolutely fantastic. And just throwing a George C. Scott for good measure, who's absolutely great in this film too. All right. So my number two would be The Wages of Fear from 1953. It's a French movie. I'm not going to try to pronounce the French. Um, but if you are not familiar, there's I believe there's an American remake from the 70s that should be also quite decent. But this one, it's a movie from 1953, and there are sequences where you're going to be on the edge of your seat. I watched it just once, and I still remember... It's it's about basically these four men are hired to transport an urgent nitroglycerin shipment without the equipment that would make it safe. So you can exclude. Awesome. It is honestly, it's from 1953. It's black and white, and you will be just biting your nails the entire time. It's it starts a bit slow, but once it gets to the them having the this kind of old rickety van transporting this, you know, nitroglycerin. It just kicks into this. Uh, people talk about uncut gems, level of anxiety. I feel like this might be even higher. There's especially one scene in a jungle that lasts, I think, about 20, 30 minutes, and it's just one road. And it's oh, it's honestly so such a strong recommend. Nice. Uh, I'm gonna have to check that one out. That's for mm-hmm. sure going on the watch list. Mm-hmm. Um, very nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, that leaves to my our number ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I have um, Ikiru as my number one. Nice. Still standing strong um, as one of my favorite movies that we've watched for this podcast. It's these are Ikiru and then Arsenic and Old Lace are my number three and four that we watched for the goats, which we've done like 50 weeks for that now. So, yeah, still just one of my favorites for this podcast. And um, yeah, just an awesome movie you should check out. Have you seen Harakiri? Yeah. Okay. We did that for goats back in February, mm-hmm. I think. They're just so, it was like my first honorable mention. <laughs> there you go. There's just so many great uh, Japanese films from like that era, and most of them are in black and white yes. at that point. Yeah. And well, and so so the one that I kicked off was Seven Samurai. <laughs> there you go. Um, mm-hmm. So many great ones. My number one is on the waterfront, mm-hmm. and this is like. Capital A acting, the method, Mm -hmm. everybody Mm -hmm. in this movie. Um, Marlon Brando gives arguably his best performance as this man who's put in a situation where he has to decide between stooling on his uh, union buddies, aka the mob, uh, and this young woman who he's definitely developing feelings with. And just Marlon Brando's great, Evan Marie Saint, Carl Malden, who's one of the best character supporting actors ever and was in so many great films, and Lee J. Cobb. It has such a visceral and intense finale that just builds up all of this. And it's still pretty relevant in terms of dealing with crime and corruption. And, you know, I think this is one of those films where it's just like, this was back when it's like unions had that kind of reputation because they were all run by the mob. So, mm-hmm. and you feel that kind of stuff in so many other films like The Irishman and all kinds of stuff like that. This Ilya Kazan was such a great creator. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, my number one would be a horror movie from 1963. And if I tell you it's it uh, frequently. Uh, hits the top spot for Martin Scorsese himself, you know that must be some good stuff. It's called The Haunting. 
There's a oh yeah, awful, it's on my list. There's I think a, I own this movie. <laughs> good. There's an awful, 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 awful remake from 1999, I believe, with Catherine Zeta Jones and Owen Wilson. Don't don't even waste. I was 12, and even the 12 year old couldn't it couldn't scare me even when I was 12. <laughs> However, this movie from 1963 it has I believe has a maybe two jump scares through the entire movie. But it just builds and builds and builds on the atmosphere and just you quickly forget it's an old movie and you are in it. You are in it with them being locked in this castle for this experiment, sleeping experiment, which is not. And it's a masterclass on how to build attention, how to structure a horror movie and every single uh, horror wannabe director who wants to make a horror movie nowadays should be forced to watch this we don't need jump scares or if we or if we do make it one and make it meaningful on like it's insanely great i'm afraid to rewatch it because it was that good and read the um, book the haunting of hill house hmm. yeah i do own the movie and i think it was because um i saw somebody point out that like that was the only decent movie adaptation of Haunting of Hill House. Like when the Netflix series came out, which mm-hmm. man is, is so good. I need, I want to rewatch Terrifying. it. So what, scary. What made me watch it is again, I heard this is Martin Scorsese's one of uh, like one of his favorite movies of all time. And I was like, that dude's seen. So it must be cinema. The the Uh, dude seen like you can you can meme about him all you want, but the dude seen some movies. Like that dude seen like you know I think he's seen more movies than all all the Sifot crew combined. Maybe. Uh, Real quick, uh, movies that I have listed that I thought were worth mentioning but didn't quite make my top five were um, Doctor Strangelove uh, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying worrying and and Love the Bomb. bomb Yeah. Uh, Clerks, American History X, The Artist, um, I think is super underappreciated, which is weird saying about a Best Picture winner. But I think people were like, it only won Best Picture because it's in black and white. It's like, no, it's a great movie. Yes. Shut up. Uh, M from nineteen from Fritz Lang, 1939, uh, Bringing Up Baby, which I watched recently. Um, uh, Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train is one of my favorites of his. You shouldn't have done that guy. And, uh, he makes me laugh every time. And the last one I wrote down was the original Night of the Living Dead. Nice. Yeah. Stranger on Train, great. Um, watched, I just rewatched Gaslight. Fantastic. Um, I love some old, like, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah. I'm a Nick Cage. Um, <laughs> Haxon, which is a really interesting, like, it's a quote unquote documentary about witchcraft, but it's so much more interesting and stranger than that. And, you know, like, Voyage to the Moon. Like Trip to the Moon, from mm-hmm. George uh, Meliès. There's just so many films to appreciate from early cinema to go check out. Yeah, and my honorable mentions are Paths of Glory by Stanley Kubrick, yes. Psycho, Sunset Boulevard, already mentioned by Shane, Casablanca, Twelfth Angry Men, Touch of Evil, yes. Roma, and one one last uh, check. Czechoslovakian movie actually but best foreign picture winner so you might actually get to see this one closely observed trains from 1966 12 angry men would have for sure made my list if i would have for some reason i honestly didn't select it just because i thought you, one of you would have it so i just wanted my list to be slightly Goodbye, more schindler's unique. list hello 12 <laughs> angry men no uh yeah no uh, that just leaves time for the spinoff. Um, that one thing in any of pop culture that you want to tell everybody to check out or to stay away from. Let's go in reverse order. Luke. So I would 
uh, recommend a movie called Unsane from 2018. As mentioned before, Soderbergh directed it on an iPhone with some mm-hmm. cheating using some special lenses and some extra cameras for one or two shots, I believe, or scenes. So if I tell you it's a, it's about a mental, you know, it's a, it's, it's a movie about this woman played by Claire Foy, who mm-hmm. is put into a mental institute against her will, it's okay. And when I tell you there might be a stalker involved that might get a job in that same hospital and nobody believes her, and you don't know until a certain point whether she is correct or not, that's a thriller. And it's a great one. It relies purely on Claire Foy for most of it, and she is so great. Hmm. She is underappreciated, and she just kills it. And the the ending, without giving anything away, is heartbreaking. And also one very, very interesting cameo that I did not see coming when I was sitting in the theater watching that movie. Well, it was Soderbergh, so I was like, of course, of course he's here. But yeah, no, I was, I was surprised too. I'm not going to lie. But then when I when I was like, oh yeah, Soderbergh, duh. I'm just glad that it has turned into a thing now for mm-hmm. said person to just keep popping up in all of his yep. movies. Uh, Shade, I'm going to sneak in between. Uh, I'm going to go because I'm, I'm going to be pretty quick. Um, and I think this is right up your alley, Shane. Shane, have you heard of The Immaculate Grid? The Immaculate Grid. It's that not a amazing. movie. It's a website thing. Oh. Um, I think this is right up your alley. So it's this, you know, there's these daily like Cinewordle and Framed, um, framed yep. and all those movie games that people like to play, which are fine. If there was an app, I would download it. I just don't play them because I always forget to go to the link every day. Mm-hmm. Um, the Immaculate Grid, you can actually like sign up and it'll email you. Hey, new grid's out. Um, do it. It gives you a nine square box and it's baseball themed. So you'll have on one side, let's say Red Sox, Yankees and um, uh, 40 home runs or whatever. And then on the on the top across, it'll say like Cy Young, um, you know, Marlins and Dodgers. And you have to like fill out the grid and it's nine squares and you get nine guesses. So It'll tell you if you're right on any of them, but like if you, the idea is you need to complete the, you want to complete the grid. So like, you know, you, you can pick any player that was, you know, for let's say Red Sox Marlins. So I, I can put Josh Beckett in there, you know, yeah. and that, and that's the square or like you need to find the one that's like, you know, Cy Young rookie of the year or whatever. And you can, yeah, I got a Houston Astros, Texas Rangers, Nolan Ryan. It's it, it's it's the same for everybody every day. Um, so kind of like um, framed or whatnot. Um, and you can only access the one of that day. Um, but anyway, if you're a baseball fan, you should be playing the Immaculate Grid um, for funsies. It takes just a little bit of time, but it's also like a fun exercise, especially because like my sweet spot in baseball history is like 2002 to six. Um, so... You know, a lot of it's just me is like Rich Hill probably played played for them, right? Because um, he played for everybody. Um, you know, I'm giving this so, one a try right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, before you finish up, <laughs> what is your spinoff, Shane? Praise the righteous gemstones. <laughs> I just love this show. I'm a huge Danny McBride fan. I love Eastbound and Down. I love Vice Principals, but I feel like this is the show that's like seeing him evolve. In terms of like making a show, because like Eastbound Downs basically mostly just riding on Danny McBride being mm-hmm. Kenny Powers. Um, this is such an interesting indictment too of 
like where organized religion goes wrong, where it's just like, we care more about making money than actually preaching. Or in this season, it's a a militia they're going toe to toe with who's calling them out on not being real believers and they're a bunch of doomsday preppers. And the cast is just great from Danny McBride to Adam Devine to John Goodman, just Walton Goggins as Uncle Baby Billy. Um, it's just so fantastic. I literally just watched the new episode before we started recording. I love the show. I haven't gotten into season two or three yet, but I need. Anyway, uh, Shane figures out uh, the Immaculate Grid. Uh, yep. Quick thanks to him and Luke. <laughs> Uh, that's a wrap. Remember, you can follow them. Uh, the place they mentioned at the top, I'll have some sort of social medias uh, linked in the uh, episode, uh, shown in the episode description. Uh, you can also find uh, links to all their places if you go to sifpop.com slash meet the contributors. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, Letterboxd, Threads, Instagram, whatever, at Schweitcastle. Um, quick reminder, Sif Pop Writers Room is part of the Studio DNA Network. You can check out other great shows at studiodna.media or by searching Studio DNA in your podcast player. If you're interested in writing for SifPop.com or you want to get in contact with us for the show, maybe send us a question to explore during the B-plot, then email writersroom@sifpop.com. And please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify if you're listening over there. And thanks if you've already done that. Next week, Robert and Jacob will be joining me to talk about Good Morning Vietnam uh, for our GOAT segment. Really excited to revisit that one. And in two weeks, as mentioned, I'll be watching Bram Stoker's Dracula and The Sixth Sense. Both first watches for me. Foster and Nick are joining. So So I'm going to go out on a limb and ask, do you know? I know. Okay. I saw Fifty First Dates a ton. I know. I just wish that I could go back in time and Mm -hmm. not know and watch that for the first time. Same. Yeah. I mean, yeah, especially like, not that, yeah, I I grew up watching Fifty First Dates as a pretty, pretty like normal staple in my household for comedies. And yeah, that movie obviously spoils it, which is a really funny premise. Right. That'll do it. Thanks, guys, for hanging out. We will see you next time.